Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Wednesday morning. It is August the 9th. 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Rev is not with us again, so did you bring your talking shoes today? I did. Okay, good deal. We'll, um, we'll get to a lot of that here in just a couple of seconds. I want to begin the show this morning. I'm not talking about the ACC, not talking about the, the SEC, not talking about Clemson, not talking about South Carolina, but rather um, the financial state of the nation. I think it's, um, I, I normally do a better job than I've done recently because the majority of stories that people are most, most interested in have revolved around Donald Trump and the indictments. We'll get there. Um, Joe Biden and the crime family. We'll get there in just a couple of seconds. Had somebody lecture me yesterday about spending too much time defending Trump, not enough time trying to incriminate um, Joe Biden. I can't do either. I mean, I'm not a defense attorney. I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not a member of Congress. I'm a, a guy with an early morning radio show in a, you know, top 200 market in America. So I don't know how much Josh I nor Rev can move the meter in regards um, to those major national political scandals, but we can engage a conversation. And I'm proud of what we did um, yesterday. Um, Josh and I talked before the show about is Trump a person or an idea? He's both. Okay, yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he's obviously a person, but but he also represents or embodies an idea. He symbolizes something much larger than just himself. I would imagine, Josh, to some degree, Biden symbolizes something, kind of the anti-Trump. You know, the belief that we've got to get the 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 government back in the hands of careerists, these people who have hmm. done this for a living. I mean, you know, um, we tried that; that was too crazy. Don't want to do that again. And I'm talking for the independents out there. You know, um, that was a little too wild a ride for me. Uh, I'm going, you know, I, I, I watch Seinfeld, but I need to know that somebody's in charge of the government who understands the way the, the skids are greased and, the, and, and, you know, the wheels churn, so to speak. Um, so, in essence, I think they both symbolize something. Now, you know, Biden would be uh, a decrepit old man in serious cognitive decline that I believe is a political thug. I believe he's the leader of a family that practices in in political thuggery. Um, Trump is, you know, we talked yesterday a great deal about what is the idea behind Trump. Um, I think it's interesting toward the end of the show yesterday. Don't want to call anybody, but by call anybody out this early in the morning. But Jeff basically said, um, and I'm paraphrasing here. He didn't say this verbatim, but he insinuated that everything's okay. You know, what is the unemployment rate? What is, I mean, are we not exporting energy? Um, yeah, there's this inflation out there somewhere. But but other than that, Biden's done a pretty good job of managing um, the economy. I just don't buy that. I mean, I looked at, I mean, I'm not saying Jeff said everything's fine. But Jeff basically said, I mean, I, I'm basically implying, and I'll stand by this comment, I think America is in significant decline. I mean, I, I think our nation, the most powerful nation on this planet, is in serious serious decline and i can't remember who said it but one of the great philosophers of uh of you know former times said you know it happens gradually and then suddenly i think we're at the precipice of suddenly i mean i just do um i went back and read uh some of the fitch downgrade on our credit and what they said i think they're far too optimistic in their um assertions uh in their critique uh they basically are saying that um we've been unbelievably irresponsible in managing the nation's affairs. They're giving us more credit than I think we deserve 
Um, they're, they're basically arguing, and, and really and truly the reason that Fitch downgraded the credit of the United States is some of the CBO estimates during the, um, the Inflation Reduction Act and CARES and the American Rescue Plan, some of the cost, I mean, we knew they were going to miss. I mean, we knew that. The CBO never gets it right, but the margin of which they missed. The CBO expected, you know, the loss to be this much. The CBO expected the expense uh, to be this much, and they were much larger um, than that. So, you know, and I think they're still painting a rosy scenario. I mean, I I still think they're giving Washington more credit than Washington um, deserves. In other words, we went from a triple A to a double A plus. If we weren't the United States of America, we'd have probably gone from a triple A to a A minus instead of a a double A plus. But once again, they tend to give the, um, the rating agencies tend to give uh, our government as much benefit of the doubt as they possibly can. But it's, it's mind boggling. It's mind numbing to know what we've spent uh, in the last couple of years that we don't, that we don't have. I mean, we historically have done that. Um, Let's go through this. So uh, back in 2011, Standard & Poor's dropped the U.S. credit rating from AAA. Um, Fitch and Moody's did not. The ratio of U.S. debt held by the public to GDP. In other words, you've got a GDP valued at one number. You've got U.S. debt held by the public at another number. In 2011, when Standard & Poor's lowered, uh, you know, or dropped the credit rating of the United States, that number was 65.5%. Today, that number is 98.2%. I mean, the, 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 the debt, the, the U.S. debt held by the public is about equal to the total of the, um, of the U.S. economy. It was 65% in 2011. Um, it was about 79% before the pandemic. But we printed about, you know, we increased the money supply by 40% uh, during the pandemic. Um, General government debt. I mean, stick with me for a second here, Josh, because this can get weedy if mm-hmm. we aren't careful. General government debt, including state and local government, is more than two and a half times the median 39.6% of GDP AAA credit rated nations around the world. In other words, Switzerland, Sweden, um, you know, Yugoslavia, I'm just naming countries. I don't know what their credit uh, credit ratings are, but the median of a nation, when nations issue debt and someone looks at the balance sheet of that nation and says, what is your, um, you know, what, what is your, what is your percentage of debt compared to your GDP? It's 39.6% for the nations that are AAA rated. We're 98.2%. I mean, we're getting a lot of benefit of the doubt. By being mm-hmm. the big, bad United States of America, the empire that has kind of told people where to stand and what to do for the last, you know, what, 75 or, or 80 years. But but just think of that for a second now. Fitch, Moody, Standard & Poor's, the rating agencies, when, the, when governments around the world issue debt and they rate that debt and it sets interest rates. I mean, if Josh wants to buy um, debt in a AAA rated country, he's not going to get as good a return. If he were to uh, buy debt in a in a you know a minus rated country, because th- there's some issues there, the rating agencies have said, "Wow, I'm not sure Yugoslavia is as likely to pay you back your debt as Switzerland or Sweden." Just I'm just making up countries here. Stick with me, but 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 anyway, our ratio today is 98.2 percent. It was 
4% in relation to GDP. Because we hear this, well, I mean, what about GDP? How does that compare to GDP? It's horrible. It's horrific. It was 79% before the pandemic. It's 98.2% today. And of all the nations in the world that issue debt, when someone gets a AAA rating, it is normally 39.6%. Uh, in the first nine months of fiscal year 2023, we have spent, excuse me, a fiscal year 2022, we have spent $1.39 trillion that we don't have. $1.39 trillion that we don't have. Interest on the debt this year is expected to be about $700 billion. I mean, it'll be north of a trillion. Once all the cheap finance debt rolls off, it matures, because we're not paying the debt off, we're refinancing the debt. So once some of the debt comes off the books at two and a half, two and three quarter percent, and we start paying, what, five, five and a half percent? I mean, they're not paying for debt what you would pay uh, on a revolving credit card or on a home loan or on a uh, mortgage, excuse me, a, a car loan. I mean, they're paying a cheaper rate because it's best on, it's, I mean, it's, it's on the Fed rate, the lending rate, the overnight windows, a LIBOR. There are a lot of things that go into what the government, what sets the interest rate for the government when it, when it borrows money. But it's, but it's going to be about $700 billion this year by the time all the debt rolls off the cheap rates into more expensive rates, it's nearly a trillion dollars. What we talk about these trillion-dollar line items in our federal budget, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, um, defense spending is nearly a trillion dollars. We'll add another to the category, not, not paying back the debt. It's not a mortgage payment. It's interest only. The interest on the debt... The debt doesn't move. I mean, the debt keeps increasing. The interest on the debt is going to be the newest $1 trillion line item in our federal in our federal budget. Um, and and this, this is kind of interesting. I, you remember I said some of the budget estimates by the, the, the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, uh, when they score these and, you know, they say this is the expense to the government, this is how much revenue will be raised. You know the biggest miss – and you wonder how honest an effort was made. The biggest miss are the electric vehicle subsidies. Remember in the Inflation Reduction Act, I don't have any idea why, but I mean, we had, as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, there were a lot of EV subsidies. I mean, there, there were a lot of green energy, uh, uh, the, the, the Green New Deal, or the New Green Deal, whatever AOC um, calls that. But the EV subsidies uh, in the, well, let's say, the hilariously named Inflation <laughs> Reduction Act uh, were scored at a cost of $14 billion. I mean, that's what they were going to cost. Goldman Sachs issued a report about a week or two ago, said their cost will be $393 billion. I mean, I understand a miss from 14 to 20, from 14 to 25. I mean, I expect the CBO to miss because they're just not real good at it. I mean, they're bureaucrats. If, they, if, they, if, they're, if they're good at it, so what? If they're not good at it, so what? I mean, they keep coming to work. They keep getting the job. Uh, I doubt anybody gets fired at the CBO. You know, it'd be amazing if the CBO were a for-profit enterprise and they missed a score. In other words, they said the EV subsidies and the Inflation Reduction Act were going to cost the government $14 billion, and they end up costing $393 billion. Somebody loses their job on Wall Street. I mean, somebody gets fired if they have that big uh, miss. Hope. But um, in, in, of, all the, of all the climate initiatives, and, and this is where the liberals, you know, live in la-la land, of all the climate initiatives, um, Goldman 
estimates that the, the climate spending would total about $1.2 trillion. That is three times more than the $393 billion, excuse me, the $403 billion that CBO estimated. The, the point I want to make, and, and I'll wrap this up, the point I want to make is this. Um, I'll get to uh, what the public are doing today. I mean, we're taking more money out of 401ks than we ever have. I mean, there's an increase of 36% in the number of people who have taken money out of 401ks. Um, revolving credit card debt for the first time in human history. A nation has revolving credit card debt of over a trillion dollars. Trillions become the new billion. I mean, I can remember a day. I'm nearly saying I can remember a day. Billions got your attention. Millions didn't. I mean, I, I don't remember a day in my life when somebody said 20 million bucks. I was like, well, I mean, that's the government. But 20 billion, I remember being younger and somebody would say something. Hey, man, the government spent $20 billion this year, didn't have. And I'd go, damn, billion? Billion? That's a thousand million. Somebody better get their act together in Washington. We, I mean, it's a little bit like gay marriage. Billion didn't get the time of the sunshine it deserves and the bright lights. <laughs> I mean, if the, if the bright lights and cultural and social change well, shined on gay marriage, it was but for a brief moment. I mean, we blew past gay marriage like it, you know, we blew past a billion bucks, kind of like we blew past gay, gay marriage. And now trillion is the new number that catches our attention. Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're credit card debt in America today is north of a trillion dollars for the first time in human history. $1.03 trillion of credit card debt that this nation holds. Um, more people up 36% Q2 in 2022 to Q3 in 20, excuse me, to Q2 in 2023. We saw a 36% increase in the number of people who declared hardship in their financial lives and were allowed to withdraw from their 401k. Um, the student loan reprieve that has lasted three years, people have not made student loan payments. The majority of people have not made a payment three years. That resumes in October. I mean, that's why the Biden administration is making such an effort to forgive or cancel student debt. I mean, they see these realities. They know that here's what's happening in America today. Uh, Jeff said yesterday, we've got a little bit of inflation. We have rampant inflation, out-of-control inflation. The consumer's getting killed. The average working family, man, woman, child, are getting destroyed by inflation. It knows no socioeconomic bounds. Um, you don't go to the, to, the, to the gas station and buy a gallon of gas, and they ask you what your income is. I mean, it's not like taxation. It's not, it's not a step up. It's not marginal. It's, a, it's, you know, if Josh goes to buy gas and makes X and Bill Gates is, back, is next in line to buy gas, he doesn't pay a different price. He doesn't pay a premium because but that's kind of the Democrats' model. I mean, that, you know, redistribution, collectivism, socialism is what it is. But right now, we still have an economy where if Josh goes to a nice restaurant, he pays this for a steak. Bill Gates goes to that same restaurant. He pays the same thing Josh paid for that steak. If I go get gas today and behind me is Warren Buffett, I mean, he doesn't get a special price or I don't get a better price than he does. So we're beginning to see, I think, a panic of the Biden administration because, once again, some of the credit is resetting, some of the student debt is coming back into play, and, and people don't have the money. I mean, right. they, you're going to see delinquencies. That's why people are taking money out of their 401ks, those who have money. And 401ks are declaring hardships because of inflation. And you're seeing, once again, uh, more people by 36%. That's a big number. 
36% more people made a hardship withdrawal from their 401k in Q2 of 2023 as opposed to Q2 of 2022. And the the student debt's getting ready to reset. We've got $1.3 trillion. Somebody asked me last night or text back and forth with a financial guy. And he said, why do you think, you know, we're seeing such an increase in, 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 you know, revolving credit? Because the stimulus money's gone. I mean, we shut the economy down. It led to rampant inflation. Macroeconomic stimulus always leads to inflationary pressures. We, um, we did what we've always done. We expanded the permanent expansion of money supply, leads to inflation, not, not as much as it does when you create $6.3 trillion out of thin air. The inflation came. The government printed more money to give you money in, in the name of stimulus. Got to get the economy going, right? So let's give people money in hopes and anticipation that they'll go out and spend the money, and they did. And it was a not not a recurring uh, it was not a recurring revenue stream. It was a one time hit. You went and bought a boat, you bought a car, you went on a vacation, you did whatever. Some retired debt, but a lot didn't. And, and now you've got you know the inflation is here. It's persistent. It's not transitory. It's sticky. You've got the you know you don't get a stimulus check every month anymore. So you got to go find money from somewhere. But if things are more expensive, you got the stimulus check. You could float for a year, maybe two years, on some of the stimulus checks that people were getting. Because I know families that got ten or twelve thousand dollars in extra found money, so that can keep you afloat. But all of a sudden, the inflation stays, the stimulus goes away, and you've got to make it up some way somehow. So people are charging things on their credit card. They're taking money out of their four hundred one k, and now those who have student debt beginning in October. The bill comes due again, so it's going to be a vicious cycle, and I believe that is the the impetus, that is the energy behind the Biden administration so aggressively looking for a way to cancel, forget, forgive, cancel student debt, pass that along to, to somebody else. Somebody will t- be passed along to the federal government. They'll print more money to take care of that. Um, but, you know, nothing to see here. Unemployment's 3.6%. Um, we're producing energy. It's absurd. Our nation's financial state is absurd, and we should all be unbelievably, unbelievably concerned about it. Take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Welcome back. 843-661-0937 is our number. Having some issues with our streaming this morning. If you're listening to streaming, you can't hear me, so you don't know we're having issues with our with our streaming, but we are. Uh, we're in the process of trying to get a hold of someone. Rev's not here, so it's different without him. But we're trying to find somebody in the building that knows how to get it back up and running, and we're working um, as hard as we can to make sure our streaming is uh, is back up and on the air. Let's go to the phone. We have Barry calling from Sherrod. Barry, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, did you see the story? You, I can't hear you, you Barry. You sound a little low, Barry. Are you on speakerphone? Not on speaker. Okay. We okay. can hear you much better now. Okay. Uh, did you see the story about Proterra going bankrupt, uh, Ken? Yeah. The biggest EV bus maker? Already going bankrupt. They were you know? guests at the White House on multiple occasions as a celebration yeah. of uh, the green energy initiatives. And that's also we also have a Greenville plant uh, in the Upstate. So uh, I, I just looked at the Google reviews on it. You need to go check that one out, Kim, when you get a chance. But it, it goes along the lines of Ford coming out earlier this year. You know, with nine hundred uh, nine hundred million in losses, two billion projected and $3 billion projected in 2023 on the EVs. It's unreal. They keep pushing it, and we all know why they keep pushing it. So I thought that was interesting with you talking about the economy and, 
and just going, watch the bankruptcy starting to come up and, and just watch the market. It, it's getting ready to go south. But y'all have a great day. Thank you, Barry. Have a great day, Barry said. <laughs> Everything's about to blow up and, and go south. I mean, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, but I have an obligation to call it like I see it. Right, Josh? That's um, right. I mean, I hear Mike and Jay and Philip talk about, you know, the um, the announcement, the recent announcement in Florence of the, the battery plant, you know, building the batteries for the BMW electric vehicles and some of the other um, consumers. I am not as optimistic uh, about that plant's potential. I'm sorry. I don't like to rain on parades. I'm not in the room when they make these decisions. I don't know what sort of arrangements this company has with our BMW or other, you know, car and manufacturers that need somebody to make their batteries. I just think we've been convinced that there's a much rosier scenario out there than there really is. I am all for renewable energy. I am all for trying to figure out a way to not depend on people that despise us, you know, in, in, in matters relating to, you know, where do we get our energy from? I would rather never buy another drop of oil from the Middle East. I'd certainly rather never buy another drop of oil from, from Russia. I'd like to see us do things friendlier to the planet. You know, I, yeah, I, I don't buy into man-made climate change. I'm not a, a not, I'm not a denier. I'm very skeptical of what I've been led to believe and what a lot of people have been convinced of. Um, but but I, I'm I'm for better ways and more innovative ways and more efficient ways to generate power. Whether it's uh, personal transportation, public transportation, um, commercial vehicles. Proterra was going to revolutionize the commercial truck industry. I mean, they were going to make diesel engines obsolete. And, you know, everybody was going to haul their freight around the country in, in electric vehicles and electric-powered 18-wheelers. Um, I know a little about that because I was in truck body manufacturing. And having been in the trucking business, you understand torque. You understand horsepower. You understand what it takes to pull a tractor-trailer up a hill and, and around the country. I, I, you know, I never bought into that. And, and I don't like to, to challenge anybody's, you know, honesty because I, I think people are probably trying to be sincere when they say this plant that will locate in our hometown or in our broadcasting area, Sumter, Orangeburg, and Florence, this is uh, Florence particular, um, it's going to be 11 some some jobs and this much of an investment. I- I'm sorry. I mean, I, I just, I'm not as bullish on renewable energy as a lot of others are. And when I'm told there's going to be 2,000 jobs in 10 years, uh, my mind automatically goes to 1,000 jobs in 10 years. I mean, I think there'll be, an, you know, I think there'll be a need for batteries, I think there'll always be an effort to try and figure out innovation in relation to uh, transportation. But when you look at the missed scores and you look at the budget, um, there, there's kind of a there's competing theories here. You know what a black swan is? I mean, you knew what the the, the Bayesian uh, algorithm was, but surely you know what the black swan is. I mean, the the, the black swan is an out of the blue thing you never saw coming. Right. Right. I mean, it's one of these just the rarest of rare things that we never saw coming, that there's another um, something called the gray whale. And the gray whale is, I was coming the gray rhino, the gray rhino. It's referred to as the gray rhino in business. It's very probable. Now, but there were oh, all sorts okay. of warning signs. How do you not expect this to happen at some point in time? So the black swan is kind of out of the blue. Man, didn't see that coming. Wow. But it's really made a mess. The gray rhino is very probable. How did we miss that? How did we not? Well, we, we're not missing it. We just refuse to accept. Um, and, and once again, when, when Standard & Poor's downgraded U.S. debt in 2011, our public debt was 65% of our GDP. Today, public debt is 
of our GDP. Of all the nations around the world that have AAA credit ratings they're, and then have public debt, their debt is the median percentage of debt to GDP is 39.6%. So we're, what, two and a half times outside the normal and average. Now, we're the big bad USA, and we get somewhat of a discount because we're the big bad US of A. But when you look under the covers, we're a very, very troubled nation financially. We just are. I'm mm-hmm. not saying we're by ourselves. Japan has issues. China has issues. Russia obviously has some issues. Um, the countries around the world have, have survived on borrowing money from the public. I mean, that's kind of sort of. I mean, there are a few nations, Scandinavian nations in particular, who have not done as much of that. But, um, but we're not having a black swan event. I mean, this is a gray rhino. I mean, you see this coming a million miles away. Right. And anybody with, with any degree of financial literacy can see that you can't do this. You can't spend $1.39 trillion uh, in nine months that you don't have. I mean, you can't normalize that. At some point in time, that rooster comes home to roost. And as part of the miss, as part of the $1.39 trillion, the CBO's estimates that have been historically inaccurate are unbelievably inaccurate when it comes to EVs and the, the green energy initiatives. And the green energy subsidies that were embedded in the, I'm going to imagine this, the Inflation Reduction Act had a lot of EV subsidies involved in that. Um, the... In the, in the Inflation Reduction Act, they were scored by the CBO to cost the government for $14 billion. They're going to end up costing about $393 billion. And Goldman estimates that climate spending by the government, and that is the initiative to get us off of uh, carbon-based fuel, in other words, the decarbonizing of the economy, we were told was going to cost about $400 billion. Goldman scores and says, no, nah, it's actually $1.2 trillion dollars so once again when i was a kid billion got my attention i'm an adult now trillion gets my attention i'm i mean i'm just i'm i'm hardened by the billions the billions don't get my attention 20 billion who cares 30 billion who cares 100 billion who cares a trillion whoa now you're talking real money now and let's remember a trillion seconds ago was thirty-three thousand years we spent 1.39 trillion dollars in the first nine months of this fiscal year that we don't have, and we're taking in more money at the federal level than any government in human history ever has, and we're still still spending $1.39 trillion. So when someone says, one of these days we're going to have a black swan event, tell them, no, this is a gray rhino. This is very probable, and there have been unbelievable signs uh, of warning. We just not adhered uh, to any of the warnings. Now, now, I want to go back to what I said about the Biden administration, and I think they're panicking over, um, you know, uh, making student debt obligations the, the the borrower's responsibility beginning in October. We've had about a two, uh, about 33 months. We've had about 33 months of, of people not having to pay their student debt. That resets in October. I mean, if nothing changes, people who owe student loans have to begin paying those student loans back at um, October, uh, what's that? It was like a couple of months, a couple of months from now. Um, hardship withdrawals of 401ks are up 36% from Q2 2022. Um, there's $1.03 trillion in credit card debt, first time in human history. We said that a lot this morning. First time in human history that a nation has consumers that owe collectively over a trillion dollars. Imagine there are 45 million people who have student debt. The average payment is five hundred and three dollars. 
Imagine if 45 million people who owe $500 a month all of a sudden have to start paying that money that they've not had to pay back for the last 30, 33 months. I mean, what does that do to the economy? Right. I mean, it, it devastates the economy. I mean, they, they've been able to pay their credit card bill. They've been able to pay their car payment. They've, you're going to see delinquents galore. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just are because, once again, those 45 million people who for 33 months have not had to make that average $503 payment when they're, when they're insisted required to make that payment again, that, where does that money go? We don't have stimulus anymore. I mean, we, we, we know now that the permanent expansion of money supply, you know, the 40% increase in uh, liquidity in the economy during the COVID pandemic, we know what that did. I mean, look around. I mean, the inflation pressure is like it's never been in human history. I mean, in American history, probably human history. I mean, Germany, we've heard the wheelbarrows to buy, you know, a, a loaf of bread. But America's never dealt with this sort of increase in inflation. And, and you know, it's not transitory. It's here. It's staying. When they say inflation is declining by 3%, that's, that's not the truth, guys. It's increasing at a slower rate. Instead of inflation increasing at 7 or 8%, it's increasing at 3%. There is no decline in inflation. That There's just not a decline in inflation. It's increasing at a slower rate. And, right. and, I, and, I, and I still believe that's why the Biden administration is panicked about this student debt going back online. Let's go to the phone. We have Joe calling from Hartsville. Joe, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, guys. The biggest thing this uh, bus broker of bankruptcy is the following the same patterns as Florida, you had all the big players, you know, at the White House. You got Al Gore invested in it. You got uh, Soros invested in it. You got all the the big players, and then they dump all their stocks right before it goes under. So they get their money, and the, the taxpayers on the hook. But one of the biggest problems that I see right now. You know, you're talking about inflation being cumulative. You talk sixteen percent in the last two years. Over a ten year period at just five percent, which is what we're at, you're saying it's three, but it's not. At five percent, that's fifty percent of your buying power gone. So how do you save for retirement when in ten years you're gonna have fifty percent less buying power? And something else they they're doing that makes no sense. We're exporting uh, four million barrels of oil a day to Europe. Now, why, why is it okay for them to have oil and not us? You know, we, we can't increase our oil supply. And the last thing is they've just done away. I'm sure you're familiar with this in your business, the uh, depreciation and amortization of assets with taxes and interest. Um, they, they've done away with the depreciation and amortization part of that. So that's going to increase costs of small business by about 30 times. So it'll triple their, their tax burden. So a lot of restaurants can't, can't replace their equipment and write it off. And small business can't replace their equipment and write it off like they were up till 2022 and but that hadn't been announced that was very quietly came out i read in an article about three days ago so that that kicks in starting uh january 1st 
but that's not very widely known. So that, that's going to put a real burden on the small business. And as you know, Ken, small business drives this economy. I'll have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Well, I mean, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Whether intentional or not, the public sector has declared war on the private sector. I mean, I don't think the guy driving the 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 the, the road plow with public works has declared government. You know, I don't. I mean, I, I certainly don't believe that. I mean, the person going to work today for a government agency, they're not hostile to the private sector. I mean, I think they understand that the private sector is the you know, kind of kind of the engine that drives the car down down the road. But government in general, I'm talking about the bureaucratic hierarchy. They have absolutely declared war on the public, on the private sector, uh, intentional or not. Doesn't matter to me. Doesn't matter if it's intentional or not. It is what it is, and and they're making life unbelievably. The the best example I can give is my father was probably as motivated a business person as I've ever met in my life, and my brother and I have tried to discuss what dad would be like today. My dad died in two thousand four. We, we talk a lot about it. He and I get together and we'll say, hey, wonder what dad would have said about this or, or wonder, about, wonder what daddy would have, would have thought of this. And we're convinced now that he may have stayed at the lumberyard. He may not have tried to start. As motivated and committed as he was to starting and maintaining and sustaining his own business, I'm not sure because my dad was smart and he would calculate and he would say, you know, we can do this and not do that. And he was more times than not right. And I think, you know, looking at starting a business today, it's unbelievably, unbelievably complicated, and the government's what creates most of the complication. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Couple of callers held on during the break. Josh, let's be respectful of their time and go to the phone. All right, we got David calling from Lake City. David, you're on the air. Uh, yes, sir. Good morning. Um, I wanted to let you know if you um, if you if you'll go to you search engine and put in wake up carolina and then go to the i think it's a, a wdxy over in sumter if you if you uh, click on that you can you can listen to uh, the show uh, live stream thank you david appreciate that and appreciate you going through the effort to um not just do it yourself but advise others on how to listen to the show i don't have any idea what's happening Josh doesn't have any idea what's happening. I don't know if we got it up and running yet. We, we had some um, weather issues. We think we may have had a lightning strike. As a result of that, some of the app and streaming aren't working as we wish they would, but we're trying our best to get it put back. Let me back up. They're trying their best to get it back up and running, but um, there are creative ways to find the show. I said earlier, someone texted me and said, if you go online at WDXY, you can listen uh, via the uh, via the web, I mean the app website. I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, Josh, you explain. If somebody's accustomed to listening to us a certain way and they can't, what what advice? But I mean, what what advice would you give to those people? Right. So obviously, the people who typically listen through our website aren't hearing us right now. But uh, for those of you who are, uh, I posted on Facebook that you can listen to the show uh, via the Sumter Station WDXY or the Orangeburg station, WTQS. So if you know anyone who's kind of out of range, you can maybe call or text them, let them know about the link, which can be found on Facebook, or just send them the links directly to the websites. Uh, I'm in talks with Dave our, and a couple technical guys, so they'll let me know as soon as WFRK is back online. Good deal. Thank you very much for that call. Thank you for the information, Josh. Let's go to the phone. All right, we got Analog Bob calling from Florence. Bob, you're on the air. 
Hey, guys. Good morning. Uh, yeah, I can't uh, miss an opportunity to take a swipe at the digital world and everybody's saying, oh, go to this site, stream this, stream that. Uh-uh. Just turn on your general coverage receiver, 95.3, and it'll be there. It works all the time. Never fails. <laughs> anyway, uh, I did want to make one comment about the um, the subject du jour, and that was about the student loans. And, uh, Ken, I believe you said something about all those folks, uh, their, their um, uh, balance on their, their student loan is going to resume in October. Is that correct? The, yeah, the payments will resume unless, unless the government takes action. I mean, the courts, I think, will ultimately decide this. But there, there was a reprieve because of COVID. That reprieve ends in October and payments are to be made in timely fashion beginning in, what, 60 days or somewhere thereabout. Okay. Well, um, you were putting that in with the conversation about people drawing down their 401Ks and um, uh, uh, pulling out their savings and, and that sort of thing. I'm kind of reminded about, and, and you were saying how that would attribute to, contribute to the um, – a general deterioration of, of um, uh, economic status um, in the nation. I just I kind of remember back when um, uh, the Biden administration first floated this idea to to, to rescue all these poor people from uh, the, the the burden of student loans. There were reports about how a great number of these people who had student loans out were by no means um, uh, short of resources. That a lot of them had jobs, were working, had gone to prestigious universities, gotten uh, uh, prestigious degrees, had um, uh, good paying jobs. And we were just, we'd just be handing money to people who already already had all those assets. So uh, it, I'm, it's just kind of interesting that it wouldn't, it, that might not be a, a big contributor to the problem. And certainly the problem, as you outlined, it is enormous. But I just thought I'd want to add that on that we don't want to be helping out these uh, uh, these folks that are already well off. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Well said. Here's the point I want to make. Let's clean it up. Let's do it this in Pamplico, Indian. You ready? If the cost of living has gone up 25 to 30 percent, which is, I think, where we are. I mean, I think pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, since 2019, uh, the pandemic hit in 2020. So 2020, 21, 22, 23. I think the cost of living has increased somewhere between 25 and 30%. I'm talking about energy and food. I'm adding everything into the equation. Forget the basket of goods that the um, the federal government, you know, consumer price index, some of that, you know, they leave out. I mean, it's durable goods. It's not fuel. It's not food. How do you not include food and fuel when you measure inflation? I mean, I don't buy a washing machine every day. I don't buy a cell phone every hour. But, but I do buy energy and I do buy food every single day. Power bills are up about 22 or 23%. Gas is up about 60%. Um, I mean, everything has been inflated out of the norm. So let's, for argument's sake, let's say that the cost of living has increased by 25 to 30% and your pay has increased by 10 to 15%. Wh- wh- where do you make that up? I mean, there, there are a lot of different ways you can. You can stop spending as much. I mean, you can stop going out to eat, which creates, you know, a decline in economic activity, which leads to an eventual recession. Um, you can stop, 
Uh, you can you can sell your home, get a smaller home. I mean, there are a lot of factors in here. I'm not saying it's as simple as X, Y, or Z, but but the reality is that when when we when we so rapidly increase the money supply, I mean, I've said it. The permanent expansion of money supply has probably led to more ruination of the American dream than anything. I mean, you got globalism, you got interventionism, you've got uh, you know, the, uh, the deindustrialization of the Midwest. I mean, you've got a lot of things that have contributed to this, but I still believe as someone said right in one sentence, what has led to the decline of the American working class, it would be the permanent expansion of money supply that has led to rampant inflation that has made the dollars you earn worth significantly less. I'm not dismissing globalism. Obviously, when plants close and move to China, it has an adverse effect on local economies. No doubt about it. I'm not diminishing our deal with China in 2001, giving them favored nation status and allowing them to be a member of the World Trade Organization. Of course, that had a, an adverse and negative effect to the American working class. But I still believe in David Letterman's top 10, number one on that list. I mean, China would be on that list. I think intervention is on that list. I think of the advancement of the American empire is on that list. I obviously believe that globalism and trade deals are on that list. But if you asked me to name one thing that has led to the decline of the American working class, I would argue it's the permanent expansion of money supply, which makes, once again, the dollars we earn worth less. So when you, when you say the cost of living has increased by 25 to 30 percent, your income has increased by 10 percent, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying, I mean, I read a lot of statistics. Uh, household income is up a little bit, not anywhere near as much as as inflation it up. It creates a um, it creates a margin. It creates a you know a, a, a separation there, and and you got to make it up some way. And, and right. the way people have chosen, people have chosen to to continue to live their lives. It's hard to say, hey, we've always gone out on Saturday night to a nice casual fine, you know casual dining restaurant, and and you're telling me I can't do that anymore. Well, some have made that decision, but a lot have said I've got this credit line. You know, I'm not, I'm not having to pay my student debt. So, so the point I'm trying to make about student debt, we, we here's some facts. You ready? We're the only nation in the world with a trillion dollars worth of revolving credit card debt. $1.03 trillion. First time in human history that a nation has had a trillion dollars in revolving credit card debt. We have that today. $1.03 trillion. It is true that I mean, it's a fact. Bank of America measures this. It is true that withdrawal, hardship withdrawals from 401ks are up 36% in Q2 2023 as compared to Q2 2022. Those are two facts. Now, now we can argue, where do we go from here? We can disagree. Where do we go from here? The point I'm making is the Biden administration are well aware of these facts. The Biden administration understands the economic impact that forcing 45 million people to pay back $537,000 is, I think, the average student debt. The average payment is $503. So all of a sudden, if you've got people making hardship withdrawals and putting things on their credit card, they're tapped out. I mean, they're ta- I'm not saying everybody's tapped out. Some people are living within their means. Some people aren't. Some people make a lot of money. Some people don't. Some people pay too much for a house or a car. Some people didn't. I mean, nothing applies across the board in every example. I mean, that's, that's, I mean I'm not, nobody should be that. I mean, we're, we're a big nation. It's complicated. But, but the realities are credit card debt up, 
hardship withdrawals up, and all of a sudden we're going to be forced, the 30, excuse me, the 45 million people who have student debt who are paying an average of $503 a month, they're going to be forced to pay that debt back. That's going to have an adverse impact on the economy, period, period. Is it going to lead to credit card delinquencies? Is it going to lead to restaurants closing? Is it going to lead to um, job impact? I don't know. don't have any idea. But I think the Biden administration is scrambling because, once again, the consumer's tapped out. How do I know they're tapped out? Because they're making hardship withdrawals. They're putting things on credit card. And 45 million aren't having to pay their student debt. So when you add that factor in, you create economic turmoil. Right. And that's, I mean, in, in, in an election year, the last thing a president wants is running for office while there is economic uncertainty, economic trepidation, economic turmoil. That's where we are. And it's hard to convince me. Because I think I understand a bottom line. I understand return on investment and operating income. I'm not saying the government is a business, but, but the government's balance sheet is horrendous. I mean, it is unlike any country, I say in human history, I mean, there may be some, some other nations. Uh, uh, there's several nations that have had a rougher go of it than America. Um, normally, the nations that tried socialism, kind of like what we're doing, I mean, if we would trust capitalism as an economic theory and not an idol, we could get our train back on the track. I mean, if we force the government to live within its means to some degree, we could get our train back on the track. But it seems to be the majority mindset in Washington uh, amongst elected officials and the bureaucratic hierarchy is not wanting to make tough choices, not wanting to look the American public in the eyes and tell them the truth. And the truth is we've been unbelievably financially irresponsible, and we're not going to do that forever. There's going to be a day of reckoning. And somebody can throw out this unemployment number or exporting energy. The bottom line is the balance sheet of the U.S. is troubling, to say the least. We're, we're probably bankrupt. If we weren't the big bad U.S. of A., we probably would be bankrupt. But but our, our, our the way we operate and conduct ourselves in matters relating to financing the country's affairs, it's just something I scratch my head about every single second of every se How do you think that works? How do you believe that makes any sense? I mean, how do you believe you solve a problem created by borrowing too much money by borrowing more money? Huh. How do you believe that uh, creating a problem by printing money you don't have, you print more money? But it's easy. And politicians don't like to do hard things. And the American public don't like to vote for politicians who are honest with them about what we need to do to address the country's financial dire straits. It's a, it's a tough thing that people have to contend with, that if you want things to be better, you might have to do something really hard now that you may not see pay off in your lifetime. And, you know, it's and something I was going to mention earlier is it seems like the Democrats, you know, they're they're so focused on getting us to these uh, getting these social institutions like healthcare to become socialized like it is in Sweden or wherever. But they also want us to play babysitter to the West. And, and I think part of the reason Sweden can have socialized healthcare, which in of itself does still have problems is because we're babysitting them. I mean, like, if, how strong is their military? If we're providing the world's national defense, the Western world depends on America to provide its national defense, why couldn't you spend an extra couple of dollars on your health care system? I mean, if you don't have to devote exactly. that percentage of your GDP to, um, you know, securing your border, 
um, you know, maintaining your commitment to NATO, that then why wouldn't you try to do some cool things with health care or some cool things with, you know, a nation's retirement plan? That's kind of where the West, rest of the West is. And that's what Trump said about NATO. I mean, Trump never said, you know, NATO is, is bad to its core. I mean, Trump said these transnational organizations uh, are, are, are fleecing America. I mean, they're taking a, a advantage of America's commitment to be the world's police. Now, now, in fairness, that couldn't fly if there weren't people in Washington devoted to an empire. I mean, if the people in Washington were, uh, if there were more Rand Pauls in Washington, Sweden would be forced to spend more on its military. Austria would be forced to spend more on its military. But, but the Western world understands how committed, devoted, and how much they like being the police of the Western world, the police of the entire world. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, th- there's, a, th- there's a mindset in Sweden. We're using that as, as an example. Right. That there's a mindset in Sweden that, that says, not publicly, but privately they say, look, that, that commitment we made to NATO, it really doesn't matter because the big bad U.S. of A. loves being the world's police, and they're going to spend whatever it takes to make sure Putin is dealt with, to make sure Xi is dealt with. So instead of spending that $500 billion on, on $300 billion on defense, let's spend it on our health care system and improve the quality of life for our, our citizens. Let's go to the phone. Is someone there? We, yes, there's Charles calling from Lamar. Charles, you're on the air. Good morning. A couple of quick things, and then I've got to, to run. <clears throat> you know, the Jeffs of the world talk about three percent inflation which i think joe mentioned earlier on the phone was probably closer to five what nobody's paying any attention to especially no one on the left is that number of three percent five percent or whatever it is is on top of the 41 year record high that we had last year so everything you hit the nail on the head everything's 25 to 30 percent more now than it was before the plague hit um and and uh this uh, j- job creation, your president talks about how he created 13.2 million new jobs. Hillary Clinton posted on Twitter yesterday he created 3 million new jobs. And the president's own Bureau of Labor Statistics says the number is 2.7 million since January 20th, 2021. So um, I guess we need to have a fire extinguisher around to put uh, put pants on fire out uh, when they're burning. Well, one quick thing about the uh, the uh, radio, I'm listening now on 95.3 FM, and I have no problem whatsoever, but I'm in my truck, and I live in rural Darlington County, almost to the Lee County line. I can't get you on the radio at home. I have to listen online. And you have regular callers from Aiken, and Lexington and Cross Hill and Georgetown, Kentucky, you certainly can't listen to the radio. And that's why that streaming is important. And thanks for sharing the idea about WDXY. That's how I was able to listen at home. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Charles. And we don't take that lightly. I want you to understand, when I, when I say I don't understand it, I understand the importance of it. I mean, I don't understand how we're streaming. I don't understand how the, the websites of the apps work. I mean, that's just not my, my deal. Um, you know, I've got a little age on me and I know what I know and I know what I don't know. <laughs> and I try to trust people with, with those things that I know I don't know to do what they need to do to make sure it works. But I certainly understand how important it is for us to be in that digital space. I mean, you know, you, you can fight it. You can not like it. You can wish everybody was riding around in their car truck, listening on the radio. But the reality is that's not the world we live in. 
We live in a world where a digital presence is important, and I apologize uh, profusely that we've not been up to snuff yesterday nor um, today. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. And this is the point. I mean, Charles and Joe touched on something. I've tried to explain it. Maybe I didn't do it as well. Inflation is a cumulative number. I mean, if inflation, I mean, I think the Fed target is what, 2.5%, 2%, 2.5%. I mean, I, I'm arguing they moved the goalpost. Their new number now is 4% because of the permanent expansion uh, money supply. They, they've never adhered uh, to the 2.5%. When they knew they couldn't meet the number, they, pull, they pulled in CPI, Consumer Price Index, and the measurement scale. They, they began try, trying to uh, kind of manipulate that number by taking food and fuel out of the equation. They would argue, Josh, that the reason they took it out, we have large, you know, swings in the price of energy, large swings in the price of fuel. Um, if a if a uh, if a late frost hits Florida and kills all the tomatoes, then anything with the price of ketchup goes up. So you know, to to, to make sure we get a more, more honest accounting, consistent accounting of inflation, we'll just take food and fuel out of that equation. But but we buy food and fuel every day. But mm-hmm. somebody's like, I don't put gas in my car. No, but you turn the light switch on. But that's energy. Uh, that, that requires fuel, something generated, um, that power. It's not just gas and diesel and kerosene. It's it's um, it's energy. I mean, it's it's powering a house. It's keeping the lights on. It's running the HVAC. Um, that, that requires generating power. And that power has to make its way to the uh, down to the consumer. But, but we have... I mean, to me, we've misrepresented inflation. We've distorted the real number uh, because I think government would have a hard time explaining the true measurement of inflation. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that w- when you say two and a half, three percent, then then you're talking about two and a half, three percent on top of six or seven percent, on top of eight or nine uh, percent. It's a cumulative number. And I mean, it devastates the economy. So when, you know, and, and I, I've tried to better explain and I think we've done a decent enough job of uh, of explaining why uh, yesterday Josh and I had this somewhat of a philosophical debate about the realities of the economy, the realities of Trump, and um, you know, is Trump simply a political figure or is he uh, kind of an embodiment or symbol of something um, uniquely different? I argue that he's much more than just a simple uh, political figure. He is indeed. Um, kind of a manifestation of a lot of things that led to America finding him interesting, finding him um, somewhat intriguing. But but I still, when you break down Trumpism, I mean, let, let's say Trumpism is an idea. Um, I mean, it's hard to believe that Trumpism is an idea. It's a it's an emotional re- reaction and response, no doubt. But for argument's sake, Josh, let's say that Trumpism is an idea. What generated the energy that led to Trumpism? I mean, it, it's hard not to say it's the decline of the American working class or the perceived decline of the American working class. The American worker felt they were losing ground. Right. Now, now I could argue globalism is a large contributor. I could argue that um, trade with China is a large contributor. I could argue NAFTA or GATT or TPP are large contributors to the decline of the American working class. But I still believe the fundamental problem with the American economy today is we have permanently expanded money supply that has led the macroeconomic, you know, inflation or macroeconomic stimulus will always lead to inflation. If you're making a million bucks a year and gas goes from two to three dollars, well, you don't give a damn. I mean, I mean, yeah, you it bothers you a bit, but what changes about the way you live 
your life. You go to the ball game. You go to the race. You do your thing. But if you're making, you know, median income, if a family of four are making, let's say, eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year in South Carolina, and inflation leads to twenty-five to thirty percent increase in the cost of living, and your boss gave you a ten percent raise, you're underwater twenty percent. So, right. so how do you make that up? So, so, so when you look at Trump as a kind of an idea or a concept, I think Trump, I think the idea of Trump is an emotional reaction to what people were feeling in their real lives. They felt left behind. They felt poorer than they were. They, they, they didn't go to Harvard to study, you know, uh, the permanent expansion of money supply. They, 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 they didn't go to, to the Wall Street Journal editorial board and say, hey, can you guys explain this to me? They just know that at one point in time in their existence, the parent could teach school, the father could work at a textile mill, and they could make their way. I mean, they could educate a couple of kids. One goes to Clemson, one goes to Carolina. You know, they've got a, a double-wide mobile home at the beach. And they know now that that quality of life is toast. I mean, they, they can't keep up. And, and Trump, as we said yesterday, whether sincerely or not, he touched a nerve with, with 75 million Americans who largely felt the way that we're talking here. Now, now, once again, there's an emotional argument to be made. And politics is not a bunch of Vulcans, right? I mean, you know, we're not logical creatures. We emotionally invest in things. And the emotional investment was reflected in a support for Trump. But if you dig a little deeper, there are a lot of economic realities that led to the inevitability of someone um, like Donald Trump. I, I want to I shift gears for a second. That's a good, that's a good, hey. oh, yeah, there you go. There you go, shift gears here. We're going to talk uh, racing. I knew of Kerry Tharp before I knew Kerry Tharp. And I've been a bit envious of Kerry because Kerry's made a living working with Gamecock Athletics and working with NASCAR. <laughs> and two of my favorite things in the world are Gamecock Athletics and NASCAR. And Kerry is at the end of a run with NASCAR. I wanted Kerry to come in and not just talk about the Labor Day race. We'll get to that in just a couple of seconds. But, but just to kind of reflect, Kerry, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning, Ken. It's always a pleasure to be on, and uh, thank you for having me, and uh, just uh, look forward to our visit here today. Well, and, and I want to start here. I mean, uh, you know, I knew you from your Gamecock. I knew of you. Let me reflect. I knew of you through some of my Gamecock friends on the board and officials at the university and how good a job you did. And the next thing you know, you're off and, and, and being a part of NASCAR. So, so walk me through the transition of what led you to USC and then what eventually led you um, to become president of Darlington Raceway. Well, you know, I started out in college athletics uh, really in 1978, uh, working as a student at Western Kentucky University, the Hilltoppers. Went on to the University of Tennessee, got my master's, worked a couple years down there for, for uh, the Vols, and then uh, ventured out to the University of Oklahoma, uh, 1981. Barry Switzer, Marcus Dupree, Billy Tubbs. Uh, what some great some great times I'm out there. I'm real jealous of you now. <laughs> and I uh, was out there about four years or so. And uh, my wife and I, <clears throat> we actually got married uh, in 1982. Uh, Debbie and I have been married, uh, gosh, I guess it's uh, 41 years now. And uh, so she was out there with me at Oklahoma. And all of a sudden I got a phone call from <clears throat> a guy from the University of South Carolina named Sid Wilson. Uh, and, and, and Sid called and said, Hey, would you like to come to the university of South Carolina and work? This was in 1985. And I said, well, I'll come out and talk to you. And, uh, so I came out, uh, <clears throat> to Columbia and spent a couple of days and just really, really enjoyed it. 
And, uh, you know, the Gamecocks were kind of on the rise then. They had just had that big magical season, uh, Fire Ants and Black Magic with Joe Morrison. And so uh, we we took the leap of faith, came to Columbia, South Carolina in 1985, and I haven't left the state since. And uh, worked 20 years at uh, at Carolina and loved it, absolutely loved it. Saw a lot of changes, uh, certainly a lot of ups and downs, but uh, just great people. Uh, that I had the fortune to work with. And then, uh, you know, NASCAR came calling in, in 2005. And to be honest with you, Ken, I didn't even like NASCAR at the time. A guy that I'd gone to school with at the University of Tennessee was a vice president. And he contacted me uh, about a possible job. And I told him, I said, Mark, I'll be honest with you. When it comes on television, I don't even watch it. He said, well, why don't you come down to Daytona and, and check it out? So I went down in 2005, went to the Bush race. It used to be the Bush series, as you know. Spent about six or seven hours down there. Uh, met with Jim Hunter. And Jim, I'm sure you know knew Jim from, from being around here. And, and came back to Columbia that night. And my wife, Debbie, said, well, what would you think? I said, Deb, I don't know what I saw, but it was cool. And so... I uh, I left USC, went to work for NASCAR for about 11 years up in uh, Concord, North Carolina, but we stayed in South Carolina. We lived in Fort Mill, South Carolina, York County, and then lo and behold, uh, almost eight years ago, uh, Darlington got a phone call from Daytona, and they wanted me to <laughs> know if I wanted to come to Darlington and be the president, and as I told uh, as I told them, I said, well, I hadn't been president of anything since my senior year of high school, and uh but I came over, and it's it's been a, a, a true honor to be over here uh, in Darlington. I love this part of the state, uh, and uh, it's it's just been a real blessing, to be honest with you. Here, you've seen, I mean, when you're speaking, my mind goes a million miles an hour. You've seen sports become entertainment mm-hmm. at the college football level. I mean, I'm talking about football here, SEC. You saw the game pass join the SEC. Oh, yeah. I would imagine that was in your time there. I don't want to say do you like it or not, but 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 – it, it seems like money and entertainment has so influenced college athletics and and NASCAR. Has that been a struggle to, to kind of adapt to that transition? Well, I can tell you that you, you hit the nail on the head, Ken. It has changed so much. Uh, I remember when I, excuse me, got first got to the University of Oklahoma. You know, if you gave if you gave somebody uh, an athlete fifty dollars as meal money, that was a big deal back then. In fact, I can remember us going on basketball trips. Uh, back then, it was the Big Eight, and we'd go on a <clears throat> two- or three-game swing where we'd fly and go to Colorado and then Kansas or Kansas State and leave the dorm that morning, and, and, the, and the trainer would give the, the players $100. And I'd see a lot of these guys put some of that money in the trunk of their car uh, so they could have spending money when they got back to, to Norman. And, uh, yeah, it, it, has, it has changed immensely. <clears throat> and it really, I think, in my opinion – has changed the most probably in the last seven, eight years, maybe. Uh, I was there at Carolina when we joined the SEC. That was a a wonderful time uh, to join that conference. Uh, And and yet, as as time has evolved, and and I know you've seen it as good as anybody, it has become, as they like to say, big business. And there's a lot of pressure on those coaches. I know they get paid well, but there's a lot of pressure, uh, a lot of pressure on the administrators. And uh, I can remember when I was, I think, first at Carolina, I think our athletic budget was maybe 
20 million at the most. And now I would think that a $20 million budget would barely cover, you know, a week and a half of what you're trying to operate there now. And it's become such a big, big operation. All the sports that you have um, that in the facilities have just been, you know, the growth in the facilities, Ken, has been amazing. Well, let me ask you this. When you get to NASCAR, um, it was on fire, correct? I mean, it, it was, um, I mean, I remember, remember reading an article in USA Today the only sport with the potential to rival the NFL is NASCAR. And I don't want to say NASCAR lost its way, but you and I have had these conversations. Mm-hmm. NASCAR experienced exponential growth. Mm-hmm. That's hard to manage and get everything right. And I think they've admitted that in retrospect, we didn't get everything right about managing that phenomenal growth. Well, I think you're exactly right. Uh, and you and I have had this conversation several times. <clears throat> you know, when I first got in the sport in 2005, it wasn't a heyday. We'd go to Talladega or we'd go to even a Pocono. You'd have 100,000 fans there in a legitimate crowd that was just unbelievable. And um, I will say, and I think NASCAR will admit, they did lose their way. Uh, they lost their way, uh, uh, you know, trying to maybe expand too quickly, trying to just say, well, we'll just build these huge tracks and not have to worry about entertaining the fans at the at these events just let them show up and watch the races right uh then the economy obviously took a hit uh that affected nascar because you know nascar is not like a a regular sport where you have home games and, and and that type of thing i mean these tracks and and and, and the fan base they travel right so i think the the average distance for someone to come to a race at Talladega Super Speedway, I think, is 300 miles. So that means those people are coming from all over the southeast and beyond uh, to come to that track. So that costs money, obviously. And, and, and you know, I, I think they did lose their way for a period of time in there. But I will say this. I'd say within the last four or five years, I think that's turned. And I think most of it has to do with the leadership at the top and uh, just realizing that, you know, for us to succeed and continue to, you know, grow, we have to make sure that when our fans come to the racetrack, they're entertained. And as it goes back to, again, what you said, entertainment, we're in the entertainment business at NASCAR. And, uh, when our people get on property, uh, Tuesday before race week, we need to have entertainment for them. And uh, I think that's been a big change in how NASCAR approaches uh, its events right now. Let's take a break. I want to take a break. Kerry Tharp, president of Darlington Raceway, is with us, kind of reminiscing and talking a little bit about um, a long and illustrious career that he's decided to move on to whatever else. I'll get from Kerry here in a minute what he's what he's up to down the road. Might be nothing. I mean, <laughs> that sounds good to me, but but I doubt it with Kerry. We'll take a break. We'll be back. In just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937. We're taking a bit of a break from the hostile activities of political commentary and then spending some time with Kerry Tharp. Kerry's a friend of mine. I knew about Kerry longer than I've known um, Kerry. He's had a, um, a career in sports and entertainment from, uh, I didn't know, the University of Oklahoma all the way um, to NASCAR. So, so Kerry, what, I want to get to Darlington in the next segment, if you don't mind. But but what 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 do you plan on doing? I mean, you you, you talked about your love of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're not 87, <laughs> so there's some good days ahead. What what do you think you might do with your time? Well, you know, Ken, that's a great question. Uh, my wife and I have talked about it some. I really haven't given a whole lot of serious thought about what's next. What's the next chapter is going to be? 
um, I got this race coming up here in about 26, 27 days, and that's got my undivided attention. I'm sure after that, I'll give it some more thought, but I, I, I feel pretty certain that I'll find something to do around this area. Uh, I want it to be something that, that deals with people, uh, something that serves the community and, uh, something that I take a great deal of enjoyment in. And so, you know, we love this area of the state. Uh, you know, my, 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 both my sons and my grandsons and our loved ones are all in the Charlotte or Fort Mill area. We love going over to the beach, hour and a half away. We love going down to Columbia still, uh, not too far. And, and, uh, so I, I, I feel like at least in the, in the near future, we'll be staying around here and I, I think the good Lord will open up some doors for me first part of the year. But you mentioned right now, in, in the short term, there's a race in Darlington. Labor Day weekend, Darlington, South Carolina, is as good as it gets in NASCAR. I mean, it really and truly is. They call the Daytona 500 Super Bowl. Give me Labor Day in Darlington over <laughs> over anywhere. But, but Kerry, how is it going? Um, how can people help your swan song be even more? successful with nascar well you know ken it once again it's the opening race of the of the cup series playoffs i think the season is uh, going extremely well great racing great excitement great competition uh you got 12 drivers locked in you got four more spots uh with three races to, uh, to go uh but we're the crown jewel and, and i'll be honest with you and i know you said this and, and this is what i always say i mean daytona's a super bowl it always will be but i tell you what people want to win the Southern 500. And, uh, it is a, it's one of the majors, uh, in our sport. And, um, it, uh, it always will be, and it's withstood the test of time. And, you know, we really want to, to, to pull out all the stops and sell this race out to be the second sellout in, the, in a row, uh, third in the last five years. And, you know, that's, that's really our goal to sell out the cookout Southern 500. And I certainly hope that, uh, the fans out there, uh, take a look at Darlington and, you know, we've got our second race date back. We want to keep our second race date back. And one way that we can keep that second race date back, Ken, is filling those grandstands. And the one thing Darlington has done is remain connected to the sports, very historic past. That's important to you. Yeah, very, very important to me. And I always tell people, I think we're kind of like the Wrigley Field of NASCAR. I mean, we're not the fanciest place. We're might not be the most modern place, but by golly, I think we're the coolest place. And we have such great tradition there. It's like a mystique. You come to a race at Darlington and, and uh, you, you know, you just think about all the history that's been there and all the great drivers that have, uh, that have won there. And it's, uh, you get kind of get that warm and fuzzy feeling that you're in hallowed ground. Kerry, how can someone get tickets? If they've not gotten tickets, are there infield opportunities, grandstand? I mean, help, help us figure out uh, if you want to go, how to go. Best Best way, Ken, is to get on our website, darlingtonraceway.com. We've got some great ticket packages, pre-race experience. We announced yesterday we've got a good country artist coming out, Michael Ray. He's going to do our pre-race concert. Uh, we're bringing back the car hauler parade. That's going to be on Friday, September 1st. We're going to leave out of Florence Darlington Technical College at 6. But get on the website, darlingtonraceway.com, or call 866 866- four five nine seven two two three somebody will answer that phone and uh somebody will take care of what you need but let's come out on saturday or excuse me sunday september the third and let's pack that place and i appreciate you and wish you nothing but the best my friend well ken i appreciate you uh you know i knew of you uh before <laughs> i met you and uh you know the the 
the service that you provide around the folks in this part of the state uh, with your show, your commentary, and your honesty is second to none. I appreciate that. Very kind of you to say that. And I want to say this. If you were too young to go to Woodstock, you owe it to yourself to go to Donington. <laughs> and, I, and I mean that sincerely. It is quite the experience. I mean, I have I have slept on the infield at Donington. <laughs> I am in the club. I, I know how important. But but in all honesty, I mean, Kerr's done such a fantastic job of devoting himself to Darlington, understanding the, the the intrigue and history. And let's um, I mean, he's a he's a he's a kind of kind of a local boy doing good. Let's make sure he goes out uh, with a blaze of glory. Let's fill the grandstands at grandstands at Darlington Labor Day weekend. Gamecock football on Saturday, racing on. On Sunday. Thank you, Kerry. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate it. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-093 seconds. Second half of this Wednesday morning edition of Wake Up Carolina. Uh, I want to thank Kerry Tharp for coming by. I thought it was very appropriate to um, not bid him farewell. He's not leaving uh, the area, but he is retiring as president of Darlington Raceway. And as a former politician, I certainly understand the significance, the economic impact that the race in Darlington has uh, for all businesses around. You got, you know, restaurants and hotels and, you know, cab drivers and all the others that um, are, are benefiting from a large crowd coming to Darlington uh, once, uh, really twice a year, once on Labor Day. We really appreciate him coming on, but uh, I do want to say before, you know, we get on a different track, I don't know where you're thinking on going, but I wanted to bring up something we talked about before you know, the, you know, the state of the economy and the permanent expansion of the money supply, as you've been calling it. And I think a big issue with that is the deindustrialization of the United States. I mean, since World War II, we've basic, basically been shipping out American industry to China and other places around the world. And I actually heard a story about, you know, you know it's the, uh, the situ- ongoing situation in Ukraine there's some type of uh, missile launcher. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's a Javelin missile that we have essentially run out of those. That's why they were going to use the cluster bomb. And so I found out that we actually don't know how to manufacture those anymore. And they had to pull some of the 80-year-old retirees who used to build those out of retirement to teach modern-day people how to rebuild those Javelin missiles. Well, let me ask you a question, Josh. I mean, so, so the permanent expansion of money supply is something I talk a lot about. I think it has led to rampant inflation. I think the government has intentionally misrepresented uh, the cumulative effect of, of inflation. Um, there's a reason that people have a trillion dollars in, in uh, credit card debt. There's a reason we have $1.7 trillion in student debt. There's a reason we're seeing hardship withdrawals at a record pace from from 401ks. Um, but what do you think the government owes the American working class? See, yesterday when Jeff called, and, and we banner back and forth, he disagrees with my theories and I disagree with his um, precepts. But, but, but in all honesty, I mean, I, I think Jeff loves America. Mm-hmm. I think Jeff believes I love America. I mean, I, I don't think Jeff wishes harm on or ill on any American. I know I certainly don't. I want the country to work. Right. I mean, I'm not aggrieved. I'm not oppressed by any stretch of the imagination. I'm bothered by some of the things the country does in, in, in the collective. I mean, I, I'm bothered that we send to, we tend to believe that America's better off if more men are marrying men and women are marrying women and kids are entering the contracts to have their sex changed and, you know, abortion. I mean, that's not make it a better nation. No. I mean, whether we agree or disagree with uh, the legalization of marijuana, 
I think most reasonable Americans believe we're probably a better nation with fewer stoned people. Yeah, yeah. The- we're, we're probably a better... I mean, I understand the philosophical debate about a woman's right to choose. I understand that. I'm not oblivious to that. I mean, I'm pro-life. I'm unapologetically pro-life. But, but I accept that there are those who disagree philosophically, and a woman should have a right to choose despite a pregnancy being, you know, the, the exter- or abortion being exterminating of human life. I, I'll accept that. But, but how do you argue that America's a better place if we advance the right for a woman to have an abortion? I think we accept it as unfortunate. It's incredibly unfortunate that a woman finds herself in this position. But no, the left wants to celebrate this. I mean, the, the left wants to insult those of us who believe that marriage is a covenant that, that has served civilization for a long, long, long time in its traditional fashion. I'll accept that I don't have a right to decide what happens forever and ever and ever. Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll accept some of the political debate and, and banner. But, but what I don't understand is people on the left believe that the more babies we abort, the better the country is because women had a right to choose. We've liberated women. Okay, in the, in the process of liberating women, we killed babies. I mean, that, how do we make for a better nation? Is liberating women more important than killing babies? And, and, and the left believes that, you know, the more women we liberate, despite the killing of babies, the better the nation's going to be. The more men that marry men, the more women that marry women, the better the nation is going to be. I accept that I don't have a right nor the authority to tell everybody in America exactly what they should or should not do. I accept that self-governance requires some degree of compromise, some degree of diplomacy, some degree of debate and dialogue, but, but the left doesn't stop there. They want to impose. They want to um, try to convince other Americans that we are a better nation. How are we a better nation killing more babies this year than last? How are we a better nation legalizing marijuana here, there, and yonder? How are we a better nation when more men are marrying men and more women are marrying women? How are we a better nation when when kids are being allowed to enter into medical contracts to have a sex change at 9 or 10 or 11 years old with or without parental consent? Doesn't matter to me. Once again, I'll accept the philosophical divide. I'll accept that there are different debates to be made on these issues. But, but the left has convinced themselves and are trying to convince others that this leads to a better nation. And I, I think it leads to a horrible outcome at the end of the day. Well, here's the problem. I think that like certain, you know, like socialized medicine, it's a complex issue. I have my opinions, but I admit I don't know everything. And we can discuss and debate that. Certain issues like abortion, you're either too stupid to understand it or evil. Well, I mean, and... And, and, it, and it's not, I mean, it, okay, we're, we're, we're making, the debate has been, um, you know, does a woman have a, I mean, the media's bought into this, they propagandized this debate. Do we have a right, does a woman have a right to choose whether to abort a pregnancy or not? Right. So that, this, that's a, but Josh, that's a fair debate. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that is a legitimate debate. Does a woman who got pregnant have a right to exterminate that pregnancy on her own volition? That, that, that is a serious and consequential debate that America must have. But, but as Ron DeSantis said one day last week, that's not where the left is. The left is trying to convince fellow Americans that the nation is a better place when women are allowed to make that decision without fear of consequence or some government edict order. And that's absurd. There has to be some consideration of the unborn. 
There has to be some consideration. I saw someone on Twitter yesterday, and, you know, th- th- they were advocating for, you know, women being allowed to have an abortion without any sort of, um, you know, government edict or government order suggesting they can't do this or that or the other. And, and then a guy said, the guy asked the question, said, what should we do with a parent? If a, if a woman is pregnant, and she knows she's pregnant, and she, she's, um, she's taking meth, should there be anything done to that lady? And the guy said, of course. Why? I mean, if, if you believe the baby doesn't matter, I mean, if you believe that, you know, let, let's say meth has a, a tremendous adverse effect on the pregnancy and the baby's potentially born with birth defect or, you know, what? I, I don't know that. I mean, I don't profess to know that. I'm not, I'm not biologically or medically sound. I'm not going down that road. But, but, but the guy contradicted himself. He basically said a woman should be allowed to have a, a woman should have a right to exterminate her pregnancy whenever she chooses to exterminate that pregnancy. But, but if she's a meth addict, you know, we, we probably should have some laws against, well, I mean, you can't have it both ways. Either the baby matters or it doesn't. And it's not all about abortion. And I'm not trying to make it all about abortion. But, but, but the left is, I mean, the, it goes back to Jeff. I mean, I thought about Jeff last night a little bit. Jeff should be happy. I mean, if I woke up every day, and academia, the media, the bureaucratic agencies were on my team, I wouldn't have a lot to be angry about, frustrated by, bothered with. But, but I wake up re- every day as a conservative American looking in the mirror saying, wow, I mean, there aren't many people on my team. I mean, the voters, I mean, half the country roughly are conservative in nature. But you look at the ones that shape and create the narrative. I mean, the overwhelming majority of academia is liberal. The overwhelming majority of the media is liberal. The overwhelming majority of academic uh, excuse me, the, uh, the the administrative agencies of our federal government are liberal, or at least Democrat. How do I know that? Well, I mean, you know, uh, look at the suburbs of Washington. I mean, Trump got beat in D.C. 95 to 5%. He got beat in the suburbs 80 to 20. So, so it's hard to argue that the government's not run by a bunch of Democrats. I mean, of course it's run by a bunch of Democrats. Bethesda, uh, Twin Falls, and uh, Alexandria. I mean, all those suburbs that, that are so affluent. I mean, they're, they're Democrat, 80-20. I mean, that, that's kind of the number. So, so you got 10 people in a lineup. There's a 20% chance you pick out the Republican. So, so if you're Jeff and you're, and, you're, and you're left of center, you wake up every day knowing you've got tailwind after tailwind after tailwind. If you wake up on our team, you look in the mirror and say, wow, I mean, it's going to be a grind. I mean, if we're going to win the debate of abortion, win the debate on marriage, win the debate on taxes, win the debate on health care, it's going to be you know, totally opposed by all of these forces that have enormous influence and sway in our world. So, so when you wake up and say, hey, man, America's not in decline. I mean, everything's going okay. I mean, yeah, we've got some problems with inflation. You, you, you're kind of celebrating that, you know, um, now, now Roe v. Wade has been overturned. That, that, that is a fundamental difference in America today than prior to Donald Trump being uh, president. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The Republicans needed to learn how to take yes for an answer. I mean, I, I gave fair warning. Robert Cahaley said he would rather, it, politically, I'm not talking about from a from a, um, a moral or ethical perspective, but rather politically, Robert believes it's better off if Roe v. Wade had stayed and had remained standing. I mean, he, he thought that, you know, taking on the issue of abortion with, with, the, with the left and the media fanning the flames of a woman's right to choose— was probably going to cause Republican politicians a lot of problems with female voters. 
because everybody likes to be empowered. Women, men, black, white, red, yellow, green, everybody likes to be in charge of their lives. And if the left can convince women that Republicans want to control your life, they're going to be less likely to vote for for Republicans. It's just some of these, what, what the point I'm arguing, Josh, I understand that my way of seeing the world isn't exactly right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that stupid. I mean, I'm not a, a smart man, but I'm not, I mean, I'm not Forrest Gump dumb. I mean, I can, I can, <laughs> I can, I can make my way through the world uh, in some understandable and manageable fashion. So, so I accept that I, I don't have the authority to tell everybody what to believe, to tell everybody what to think, to impose my views and values on the masses. But, but the left believes it's their job to not just have a debate about abortion, but, but to convince others that we're a better nation if we're having more abortions. We're a better nation if more men are marrying men. We're a better nation if more women are marrying women. And that's an absurd perspective um, to have. Now, now, once again, I believe eventually our decline will be based on finance. You know, we, we can debate the, the issues, the cultural, societal issues, you know, the ethics and morals of this, the ethics and morals of that. But two plus two, two, equals, two plus two equals four, whether it's in red state USA or blue state USA. I mean, the, the math at some point in time will be unavoidable. We will, we will meet our demise at some point in time in this nation's history because we've not been able to show fiscal discipline. So this is what I want to say. I think that you're absolutely right. Like in the economy may ultimately be the downfall of America as an institution. But I think that economic troubles ultimately come from social troubles. I think, you know, I mean, part of the, like, look at all the stuff Biden's doing. He's doing this to appease, whether it's genuine or not, these upcoming social beliefs from people about socialized health care, abortions, all this uh, climate change, all this kind of stuff. This is coming from the culture, ultimately, and I think that's where we need to start to look to plug the leaks. And, and we've got to define the convergence. Right. I mean, we've, we, we've done a lousy job of arguing, articulating our points of view in that convergence of these moral, ethical issues and, and, you know, where the country is economically and financially. Let's go to the phone. All right. We have Tim calling from Florence. Tim, you're on the air. Hey, how's it on going, guys? Hey, Tim. Hey, I was just uh, giving you guys a call. You were talking about being fis- fiscally disciplined. And, you know, you look at the Fitch rating where it's like minor league baseball. We went from AAA down to AA plus, And you start to look at, you know, fiscally disciplined for the U.S., but you look at just our country overall. You know, Ken, I just left taking up two biscuits and two drinks for my wife and I, right? And I'm thinking 8 to $10, and that's probably because I'm getting old. Now it's $17, $18 for two biscuits and two drinks. You start to look around, and there are people buying half-million-dollar homes, 3,000 square feet, $80,000 cars. At some point, people have to realize, and this is in Florence, like we're at a point where people can't afford um, what they're what they're purchasing right now, and so they're not only going to be maybe upside down on their car, they're going to be upside down on their house. And I just wonder at what point does this end up being a recession? It's we're not at a true recession yet. I just wonder if it's going to end up being a depression, 
when people can't afford anything that they own, nor can they afford food. And I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Tim. See, that's kind of where, I mean, that, that's articulated in a way that expresses the way I feel. The, the number that confuses and concerns me, I understand that we're exempt from a lot of the realities of the rest of the world. I mean, we are the empire that has shaped the last 75 years. We get some benefit of the doubt. I mean, I'll accept that. I've said a hundred times on this radio show, as long as there's a demand for the dollar, we can escape the inevitable. It's still inevitable. I mean, it's still there, and we will still deal with it at some point in time. But as long as there is a demand for the dollar, as long as energy trades are being transacted in the petrodollar, we can we can skate for a long time, but we can't do it forever. In 2011, when Standard & Poor's dropped the U.S. credit rating from AAA to AA+, the ratio of U.S. debt held by the public to our GDP was 65%. Today, it's 98.2%. The median nation in the world, of all the nations that borrow money and have a AAA credit rating, it's 39.6%. That's, that's an alarming number to me. I mean, that, that, that's something that if you've got any understanding of financial, if you're financially astute at all, that number matters. I mean, yeah, okay, we're exempt from a lot of what the other world's or what the rest of the world has to deal with, because we're, you know, big, bad America. But we're not exempt from reality. And, and reality, I mean, I, I think Tim's all over it. it. It amazes me. I mean, my daughter's moving back to school. It amazes me what my wife and I think her budget will be. I mean, it's staggering. I do okay. I mean, I've, I've had a couple of licks in my life that I've done okay on. Good partners. Nothing to do with me. I was just blessed with good partners that knew what they were doing, and I tagged along and did okay. I can't imagine some family making sixty grand a year trying to figure out a way to get their kid through college without signing a document saying, charge me whatever you want, put it on the tab, and I'll pay for it one of these days. I mean, that's kind of sort of where we are. That's how you end up with $1.7 trillion in student debt. But, but I'm trying to avoid my daughter going into debt to be educated. It's hard. It's hard, but it's real hard. It's expensive. It's unbelievably expensive. But how many Americans are kind of, kind of, you know, jotting numbers down on a sheet of paper and, and kind of under their breath say, damn, good land. I mean, I can remember the day my parents gave me a couple of 20s and I was good to go for a while. That doesn't get you out the driveway today. And I think the cumulative effect of inflation, the ravaging effect of inflation is starting to hit middle class America. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, the, the super wealthy are the super wealthy, and God bless them. Some earned it, some didn't. Um, some played the game better, better than others. But, but I think we're at a point in time now where average Americans are looking around going, what am I to do? That's why we have $1.03 trillion in credit card debt. That's why we've had more hardship withdrawals than ever before in American history from 401k plans when the 45 million Americans are forced in October to make that $503 student loan payment. What sort of effect or impact does that have on the economy? We shall see. I just believe that's why the Biden administration is scurrying, trying to figure out a way to skirt the law and then, and, and, you know, cancel debt <laughs> that exists. You can't cancel debt. You transfer it from one column to another. It's still there. It doesn't go away. I mean, it's not like a fart in the wind. Uh, is there one minute and not the next. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 
I really believe one of the fundamental differences in a conservative and a liberal, and, and I'm a conservative, so, so you know, I'm, I'm speculating on what makes liberals tick. Liberals give more credit than I think it deserves in regards to academic exercises. In other words, liberals can sit around faculty lounges, USA, and concoct a theory and put a lot more faith in it than I ever would. And, and a liberal kind of decides, okay, we'll put this academic exercise in place. We'll put this theory out there. And if it's almost like we're living the flight simulator. Hmm. Conservatives say, no, man, the, crane, the plane crashes. I mean, it really crashes and burns. There's a business that's gone. I'm thinking of lockdowns, shutdowns, uh, mandated vaccines. I mean, look at what we did to normal see in our economy. I mean, what is normal any longer? I mean, if I were buying Josh's business and Josh said, I want a million dollars for the business. I said, Josh is not worth a million. Why? Because there's a scenario which you go out of business, not of your own volition, but the government says you're just shut down for three weeks. And Josh can say, well, that would never happen. I mean, the government would never, ever order me to shut my business down. Well, they did. So all yep. of a sudden your business is worth far less because that is on the table now. And I think that's the, 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 the concept of an academic exercise. You know, we, we sit around these faculty lounges, and everybody's got a degree. I mean, there's more degrees than a thermometer sitting around this table. But nobody has a real-world understanding. Tim just explained the real world. Tim bought a couple of biscuits and a cup of coffee and thought he was going to get dinged for 11 bucks. It was 17 That's not an academic exercise. That doesn't happen in a faculty lounge. That's not a flight simulator. That's the rubber hitting the road. And conservatives, I think, have a better grasp of what is really happening. They're not theorizing. They're not hypothesizing. They don't have visions of sugar plums dancing in their head. They're not listening to John Lennon's imagine. And I just think the mind of a liberal, I mean, it goes to the tyrannical do-gooder. I mean, what can I do to make the world a better place? Well, I mean, we thought about these things that these concepts seem to be real. Let's put them in the flight simulator and see if they work. But in the real world, the plane crashes and people die and livelihoods are ruined. Let's go to the phone. Tony calling from Calhoun County. Tony, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning. Um, when you're trying to figure out if something's inflationary or deflationary, you know, the formula is pretty simple. It's the number of dollars in existence divided by the number of goods in existence. Um, and that's all there is to it. Um, the number of dollars in existence you can get from the M2 and M6 money supply. The number of goods, well, that's a little more complicated because you have to understand what a good is. A good is any product or service that a human being has a margin utility for, in other words, a desire to have. Um, money, money is a medium of exchange. It's used to... Uh, Avoid having to have satisfy a double coincidence of wants that's found in the barter system. Um, it, it, so if, if you want to figure out if it's inflationary or not, you know you need to look at the number of dollars divided by the number of goods. For for an example, if you picture in your mind four chiclets and four pennies, and that's all the goods in existence is the chiclets, all the money is the is the pennies. So you take four pennies divided by four chiclets and you get one penny per chiclet. But if the government comes in and kicks in another penny, so now there's five pennies in existence and only four chiclets, so now you're at a, you know 1.25 pennies per chiclet. So, so you know, you can could argue that the permanent expansion of the money supply is inflationary, but what happens if at the same time, somebody produces one extra chiclet? 
So now you got five chiclets, five pennies, and it's still a penny per chiclet. So um, I don't, it's not as simple as just saying the expansion of the money supply. If well, but but government- yeah, but I, I hear you, Tony. But you, I mean, yeah, the the argument would be, I mean, to to your theory, and and I agree with your theory, and I agree it's not as simple on the productivity side. But yeah, I mean, if we, if we increase money supply by forty percent since COVID, and the economy grew forty percent annually, there wouldn't be inflation. But it's unrealistic right. to believe that the economy is going to grow. If the economy grows at two and a half percent, and we increase the money supply by five percent, that's going to lead to inflation inevitably. At every turn, that's going to be inflation. Right. If if you look at our country before before the Federal Reserve Act, the currency bill of nineteen thirteen. Our country averaged a 5% productive growth every year. Um, that 5% productive growth was offset because of the number, you know, the amount, because gold and silver was money. Correct. So the, the, the miners brought up about 4% more gold every year than, than was in existence previously. So you had a 4 to 5% gain in the number of, of money supply offset by a 5% growth, you know, in the GDP. And money stayed pretty static. Um, there were deflationary periods. There were inflationary periods. The booms, the busts. Um, but the market drove, you know, drove what the value was until the Federal Reserve came along. From the Federal Reserve to today, you've seen nothing but inflation. Deflation is like a bad word, you know, where your money goes farther. And they just won't allow that to happen. We're also, they're holding GDP below that 5% that we used to get. Um and the government's been living off the distance between the, you know, the difference between the five percent we would have had, and uh, you know, the one or two percent they're allowing us to have by, by manipulating the Fed, by the Fed manipulating money. Um, so it's not just as simple as the permanent expansion of the money supply. You have to compare that to the number of goods that come into existence. Thank you, Tony. You appreciate that. Well, let me talk about economic equilibrium. I mean, if you increase the money supply at the same rate that that productivity, and I mean that gets so. You, it's a tangible number. I mean, there's a hard number of how much more liquidity we have in the economy available to consumers uh, than, you know, it is of worker productivity and a lot of other. But, yeah, I mean, if, if we increase the money supply by 2% annually and the economy grew by 2%, I mean, we're out of whack now. We're $33 trillion in debt. I mean, inflation is rampant. Uh, but, but the permanent expansion of money supply has been the reason We've lived in such an inflationary generation because, once again, um, we have the ability to print money, the, the uninhibited ability uh, to print money. Let's go to Somebody's got to buy the debt, but there's been an appetite for the debt because, once again, the dollar has been respected and revered. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, Breeze, you're on the air. You know, the, the problem, too, kid, is the money ain't worth nothing. It ain't worth, it's not, it's created out of thin air. And then they tell you, well, the, the money is backed by the U.S., the United States government. That means the money is backed by Joe Biden, the bureaucrats, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell. Do you really do you want that money? Is that money? What, I mean, you, you hear what I'm saying? Now you got to assume too this that the other than the, than the people in Congress are just flat stupid, and then the ones that are just black evil and unethical. Every one of them knew and know. What's going on? They know everything you said today is not like you just exposed a secret that just this audience has just been exposed to. They know all of this. And also, I would say that the ones that have an IQ over over that of uh, Amoeba know that it was done on purpose. 
but I don't see anybody, forget the mainstream media, they aren't going to ask the questions. They aren't going to be lobbying for us to control spending. They aren't going to do anything necessary to save the country and the world because they're, they're in on it. But where are the conservative media? Why? Okay, you get you got uh, the fry guy comes in and everything. I look, you know, nobody's asking him. There's nobody saying here is the solution, and this is what we're going to do. There's no solution if the Republicans take over the House, the Senate, and the presidency. That won't be that. There will that we think they're going to come up with a solution. I mean, the bottom line is, is we're on a ship that's sinking. And nobody's willing to dang old God go to the trouble to stick a cork in the hole. So, I mean, it's so frustrating because nobody, they know that the ship is sinking. They know that the ship is sabotaged to sink on purpose. They know the things that can be done to help stop the ship from sinking. But like you said before, nobody's willing to do it. And then when they finally are willing to do it, the ship's already in the bottom of the ocean. You know, and, and again, Nobody's ever really answered the question to me also on another subject. What happens if Donald Trump is in jail when the election and the votes are being counted? What if they put him in jail three months or two months or the month before or at any time in between? What if Donald Trump is in jail during the presidential election? What if? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. You know, but let's go back to Breeze's first point. How many Americans would vote for a candidate for office who looked you in the eye and said, you know, we've got to cut spending by a trillion dollars a year, and when we cut spending, you're going to not get Social Security at 65, but rather 68. You're not going to qualify for Medicare at 66, at 65, but rather 70. Um, you know, 20% of the people in America get kicked off Medicaid and just have to figure out a way to go make it on their own. I mean, that's what has to happen. And I think we'll be force-fed that at some point in time. But but if you're a politician and you like being a politician and you want to stay in office, and there's a multitude of reasons for people to want to stay in office. Um, somebody sent me something about Mitch McConnell um, yesterday. McConnell says that he opposes an impeachment inquiry because it divides the nation. Well, McConnell wants trains to run on time. Mitch McConnell's been in the Senate since 1985 or been in politics since 1985. So he's made... Um, somewhere in the neighborhood of $150,000 a year. He makes a little more now. He's minority leader. They get a little bump. But, you know, the first 25 years of his political life, for 20 years, he made less than that. But but he's worth $35 million. I mean, how can that be? How can you make $125,000 to $50,000 a year as a public servant for, what, 30, 35, 33 years? And you end up with a net worth of somewhere $35 million. I mean, is Mitch McConnell going to give up that, to be honest with the American people? I mean, on one side are these hefty paydays and this ability to influence and control and dominate, and on the other side is doing the right thing. I mean, the right thing today in America, if you're a politician, the only right thing to do, the most important right thing to do is look the American people in the eyes and say, we have to make extreme commitments to get our ballots or get our our financial house in order. I mean, it's not going to be nipping around the edges. We're, we're going to fundamentally change the way we fund our government. We're not asking you for any more money because you send more now than you've ever sent before. But we are going to ask government agencies to cut spending by 2 2.5%, 3% across the board. We're going to ask the government to spend a trillion dollars less this year than they did last. 
but that affects us who expect services and entitlements and programs. Who will vote for that? I mean, I think some would. I mean, I, I don't have any problem. I, I, I'll be 60 my birthday. I don't have a problem. If somebody said to me today, hey, you know that deal we made to you and your generation about collecting full benefits at 67? It's going to be 69. You know, you know that Medicare deal we've made with you is about 60? It's going to be 60. I don't like it. But, but in the name of preserving a country and, and, and you know, not, not bankrupting a nation that my kids and grandkids will eventually have to live with? I mean, the most selfish thing in America today is deficit spending. I mean, our generation are, are spending money that we don't have, but we know we won't be held responsible because our kids and grandkids will be left to try and clean up the mess the best way they know how. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Last hour of uh, the morning. We've probably done our audience a disservice today talking so much about the debt and deficit spending and the American way of life and, you know, the impact the permanent expansion of money supply has had on the American working class. Got two big stories out there that we probably should be talking more about. Um, There's a lot of news breaking today in regards to Hunter and Joe Biden. Um, I've seen a couple of ads by the Save America Super PAC um, this morning. But but I, I think the best thing we can do is schedule daily updates on the legal proceedings surrounding uh, President Donald Trump. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us from our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Good morning. So, so can we sign you up for our daily update of, of what the president? There may be, yeah, at least I would think because <laughs> there's a lot out there. Well, he uh, says he's one indictment know. away from securing the nomination. So I would imagine that's well, coming I mean, sooner I think, than later. I think the politics of it are, are one thing, right? And, and we do expect a fourth indictment maybe this week, maybe next week, um, in the coming weeks for sure uh, in, uh, in uh, Atlanta area in, in Georgia. But what is going to happen this week uh, here in Washington as it relates to uh, the latest indictment and the um, uh, attempts to, to overturn the election results is a big hearing on Friday. Uh, now, the former president, Trump, will not have to be there. This is for his attorneys and it's for prosecutors. But they need to hammer out here the terms of what's called a protective order. Um, the uh, prosecution here, Jack Smith, the special counsel, has asked the judge to issue a, a pretty a uh, large encompassing uh, protective order uh, so that key evidence, testimony, things that the prosecution has and has to give now to the defense as part of uh, discovery is not discussed publicly. Um, they have cited some social media posts that the former president has made saying that, uh, you know, this could put uh, potentially uh, witnesses and prosecutors, prospective jurors, um, you know, in in jeopardy and in, in trouble and in, in danger and they don't want that and so they're asking the judge here to basically uh bar the president and his attorneys from uh discussing uh you know evidence that that they get in the discovery phase um now the process the defense trump's team has argued that what the prosecution wants is overly broad and that they're trying to censor the president and prevent from talking about these cases um, on the campaign trail as he is actively campaigning uh, for president. This uh, amounts to, to trying to stop political speech in a case that they argue is largely about political speech. Um, now, protective orders in and of themselves are not all that uncommon in federal trials. Oftentimes, judges do put um, some limits on 
what can and can't be discussed. We're not talking about a full gag order here where nobody's allowed to say anything, but it, it certainly would limit kind of what elements, so as, as the defense gets evidence here from the prosecution in the discovery phase, what can they talk about publicly? Um, what can they disclose publicly? And so the judge is ultimately going to have to come up, we expect, with some sort of protective order or not. Maybe she says there's not going to be a protective order at all, and, and you know, you're free to talk about whatever you'd like. That's not what's expected to occur, but we imagine there'll be some kind of of limit put on, maybe not exactly what the prosecution's asking for, but it'll be an interesting hearing to see. It'll be the first time, certainly, that, um, you know, the judge has to make a ruling um, on one of these pre-trial motions. So, Jared, let me play out a likely hypothetical and you give me an answer. Mm-hmm. So let's suppose that the judge, to some degree, sides with the prosecution and and Trump does not obey what the judge says is fair game or not, what can be discussed or not. What happens to Trump if he violates the protective order? If he violates a court order, he would yeah. be held, I imagine, in contempt of court, um, which could come with sanctions. Um, I guess you could jail him. I, I don't know if you would. Um, it could add to what a penalty would be uh, if he were convicted. So there are definitely sanctions that judges can impose for violating court orders. But Trump's complaint is— They could is, put a warrant out for his arrest. Yeah. I and mean, again, these, these are things that they would do in normal circumstances. This is not a normal circumstance, right? So I don't know the answer because everything that I'm thinking that they would do under like regular circumstances, put a warrant out, hold somebody in contempt— um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you necessarily would do that for a former president. But, but Trump is arguing. I mean, you know more about Trump is arguing that I've got to talk about these things because people are deciding whether to vote for me or not yeah. based on. Well, listen, again, I don't know if this is going to be, you know, the judge saying you can't talk about it at all. I, what what the, the prosecution, I think, is, is making the case is that some of what they have as it relates to evidence um, is sensitive information, right? It may deal with, uh, you know, identifying witnesses or things like that. Um, how much of that can you talk about publicly, right? Um, those are going to be, I think, considerations that are made by the judge. Very interesting. Jared, thank you for the update. Yeah. Thank you for your time, sure and uh, we'll talk soon. That's kind of an interesting – I mean, that, that's kind of where we are. Um, Trump is going to argue that the protective order prohibits him from being allowed to speak about things that – will help people make their minds up, you know, whether they're voting for him as the nominee or not, or even as the um, uh, as the candidate for president. You know, once we get to the general election after after the primaries are over, um, that, that's just such a perplexing uh, and interesting and curious situation we find ourselves in. Um, Kimberly Strassel and James Freeman of the Wall Street Journal did a fabulous job, and I'll give them credit. Of, of, of highlighting a few instances where presidential candidates and presidents, for that matter, uh, defrauded the American public. I mean, that's kind of what Trump's being accused of. I mean, he, he defrauded the American public. He said these things that weren't true. I want to read verbatim uh, what Kimberly Strassel said in the Wall Street Journal. You ready? Um, a politician can lie to the public, Mr. Smith concedes. Yet if that politician is advised by others that his comments are untruthful and nonetheless uses them to justify acts of undermining government function, quote-unquote, he is guilty of a conspiracy to defraud the country. 
And why limit the theory to election claims? In 2014, the justices held unanimously that President Barack Obama had violated the Constitution by decreeing that the Senate was in recess so they could install several appointees without confirmation. It was an outrageous move, one that Mr. Obama's legal counselors warned against, yet the White House vocally insisted the president had the constitutional authority to do it. Under Mr. Smith's standards, that was a lie that Mr. Obama used to, Mr. Obama used to defraud the public by jerry-rigging the function of a labor board with illegal appointments. Um, president Biden didn't have the power. We'll go to Biden now. President Biden does not have, didn't have the power to erase $430 billion in student loan debt, um, but he told himself he did. Uh, well, excuse me, he told himself he did because he said, and I quote, you ready? I don't think I have the authority to do it by signing with a pen. The House Speaker advised him it was illegal. You know who the House Speaker was? Nancy Pelosi. You know what she said? People think that the President of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. I mean, Nancy Pelosi said that. Yet, Mr. Biden continued to lie that he did. He continued to say, you know, we're going to forgive this student debt. That's defrauding taxpayers. I mean, we could go down to the Affordable Care Act. You like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Remember that? Somewhere between 15 mm-hmm. and 20 million insurance policy or health policy owners were forced to, um, you know, transition from one policy to another. Smith is setting a horrible precedent. I mean, he really and truly is. And if the standard applied to Obama, he would be in violation of the law. He would be a criminal. He'd be charged with a felony, defraud of the public. If Biden, and, and forgiveness of student loan, Biden even said that I don't think I have the power, the authority to do this. Nancy Pelosi um, confirmed that, but he kept saying he did. And he kept trying to forgive the student debt. I mean, the, you know, the Supreme Court made him stop, but that's the only thing. So, so I mean, that, that, that goes back to my, my point. I mean, if we criminalize the art of politics, every politician is a felon. Let me say that again. If we criminalize the art of politics, every politician in this country is a felon. At every in every candidate's campaign, they are going to be at some point in time dishonest. But if we if we turn that lie into a felony, if we turn that misrepresentation into a felony, every politician will be in jail. Every politician will be a convicted felon, and that's what I've always argued. This is a horrible precedent. This is, you know, legal mumbo-jumbo. This is um, legal theory. This is academic exercising. This is faculty lounge um, hypotheticals. This is lawfare. I mean, there's a lot of ways to explain or describe, but it's a double standard. It's an absolute double standard. Trump is being accused of defrauding the public because he said something he knew wasn't true. Obama said, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. I don't know if he knew if that was true or not. I mean, he apologized later when he basically said, it's unfortunate that some people have been put in that position. I mean, that was his comment. It's unfortunate that some people have been put in that position. It's the double standard. It's one standard for Donald Trump and another standard for all the other lying no-count politicians. And I just think that should be 
that that should bother the American public far more than I think it does. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have David calling from the PD. David, you're on the air. Hey, Bo. Anytime, Ken, you you got fire ants, black magic, and Marcus Dupree, man. I, you know you got a good show there, man. Uh, I think about you to about 1985. You know the old black magic team in '84 went from 10 and two to five and six. And I was thinking about who was the coach smoking Joe Morrison, the man in black. And you had the man there. He's representing the Darlington. That's a lady in black. But think about what was the price of the Gamecock ticket back then and what was the price of Gamecock tuition. And maybe you'll see that back in 1985, two of the top songs were Everybody Wants to Rule the World and Money for Nothing. And I remember back in 1985, Reagan, he had his economic people were trying to defend his deficit spending, and he come up with this 10% of GDP. Uh, so to make that for uh, somebody out there, if you made $50,000, you had $5,000 in debt. Now, you're telling me today we're basically 100% in debt. So in other words, if you make $50,000, you've got to pay fifty. Thousand dollars in debt. I mean, and who in the, in the debt calculator? If you look at what the Biden administration has done, not only they raised uh, inflation, they raised inflation rates and gas prices. So, take your gas calculator, multiply it how many gallons you use or whatever, and, and the increase. But here's here's the macro picture. If you look back in the day, what was percentage of people that worked, let's say, in 1985 in the private sector? versus the public sector, uh, and then you had somebody talk about goods. Okay, well, we, we, don't build, we don't have any goods anymore. It seems like everything that we do is some sort of intangible economy. So we've, we've outsourced the goods uh, to other countries, and those are raw materials, those are things that you put together. So when you outsource your goods, it's, not a, it's, it's a bad thing. So y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. I mean, really, it goes back to the, uh, the kind of the thing. I'm not the only person that has this theory. There has to be, remember the fork in the road, Josh, and and, yep. and one lane leads to a republic, the other leads to an empire. I mean, it's not that simple. I mean, I accept that it's far more complicated than that. But in an economy, that there's a, there's a, there's a share of the benefit. One share goes to capital. One share goes to labor, worker productivity. We've created an economy that far overcompensates capital and undervalues labor. Re- remember, we're talking about college yesterday, mm-hmm. and, and I've historically said we overvalue a college degree. I stand corrected. We undervalue those that don't. I mean, the state government's trying to make some corrections now. Um, I think there are uh, Tom Davis, Senator Tom Davis from Buford, came on our show several weeks back, mm-hmm. and he's introduced a bill that will say there's about 40% of state jobs that currently require a college degree that he doesn't think need to require a college degree, a uh, degree inflation, forcing kids, you know, down the road of being a college student. I mean, there, there's a fair debate and an honest debate to be had about who should go to college, who should not, what job should require a degree, what job should not. How do we encourage kids to find, you know, their path, best, best path forward? Is it, is it, um, is it the workforce Is it the military? Is it tech? Is it, is it college? Is it law school, graduate school, med school? I mean, it, there's a lot of different avenues there. But, but we've, and I think in the name of, of, you know, those who've capitalized the economy, 
How about the financialization of the economy? When I say we've 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 um over we've we've better than fairly treated capital, we've we've less than fairly treated labor. The capital side includes the financialization of the economy. Who's getting rich off one point seven trillion dollars in student debt? I mean the colleges are making out extremely well, but who's collecting the interest? It's some of these financial firms. I think I read somewhere one day that Goldman owns 30% of all student debt in America. I mean, you can't, you can't, it's not forgiven in bankruptcy. It's, it's a, uh, it's not a 2% interest loan. It's not one of these low interest government loans that encourage people to do certain things at certain, at certain times. I mean, it's, I think six, seven, 8%. It moves with, you know, the finance rate or the, uh, what I call LIBOR or the Fed fund rate. I mean, it, you know, so if you're paying, you know, 4% interest a year ago, you're probably paying seven or seven and a half percent today. It's a kind of a floating rate at times. I mean, I guess there's different ways you can sign an agreement. Um, but, but that, that really, I mean, that, that's a reflection on this, this, this fork in the road. And it really goes back to the idea of Trump. I mean, it really and truly does. When you talk about the, the middle class or the working class underperforming, losing ground, um, in today's economy, that there, you know, I think Tim said it better than I can. When you go to Chick Fil A and you expect to be dinged for eleven bucks, and and they ding you for seventeen, you kind of look like what? What's going on here? I mean, you don't think of macroeconomic stimulus. You don't think of the permanent expansion of money supply. You don't think about the the fork in the road that leads to you know a, a republic or an empire. You don't think about you know the fork in the road that leads to worker productivity and labor and the other capital and the financialization of our economy. The majority of Americans, you lose them in two seconds. But but there are fundamentals here that have created unfairness in our economy. And by unfairness, I mean the overcompensating of certain people to do certain things and the undercompensating. You can you can call it capitalism, but it's not, guys. It's corporatism. Right. We're not in a capitalist economy any longer. We're in a corporatist economy where government favor is unbelievably advantageous to whatever business you're in. If my kids came to me today and said, I don't want to work for the man, I want to work for myself, what business would you encourage me to get in? Get in business with the government. Find some sort of business that that government favor is a big part of, government policy, and then go hire your lobbyist or a consultant and, you know, make hay. I just that, that's a corporate economy. That's not a capitalist economy. And and we've got to decide whether or not we're going to allow corporatism to still remain as influential in our government or not. I mean that that's a decision that we have to make in principle. Is was Trump an anti-corporatist? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Uh, is Trump a conservative? I don't know. Don't have any idea. Um, Trump didn't do anything about the debt, but he professes to be the king of debt. But but Trump, the idea of Trump. The, the, the notion of Trump is reflective. It's easily found in who voted for Trump. The, the working class overwhelmingly supported a New York City real estate billionaire. That's kind of an odd marriage, but it is what it is. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. We got Rujan calling from Darlington. Rujan, you're on the air. Good morning, Ken. I uh, hope you're having a great day. Um, been listening to you guys, but, but, uh, uh, on a on a different note, Ken, we got a situation here in Darlington. I don't know if you've you've heard about it. Uh, I know uh, a few months back I told you about the, the the PPP loans and all the fraud and in, in, in within that system. 
And that's 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 a, a big problem now. That's a big, very big problem now because they're finding. Uh, they just they just did an interview. Uh, Queen City News just did an, an interview with a Darlington City Council person who didn't have a business, didn't have a business license, but received over twenty thousand dollars for a PPP loan. And and this this is getting ridiculous. I mean, you give you giving away money, and you know it's costing it's costing the good citizens of Darlington, the good citizens of South Carolina, and other nations, you know, taxpayers, a bunch of money. And you've got a sitting city council person that has received a fraudulent loan. And I mean, it's like it's crazy. I went and looked at the at the uh, the number of individuals that received PPP loans. I'm thinking it's, in Darlington County it was over 594 people, organizations and, and, and sole proprietors. And some of these people I looked on the list, and I know who they are. As a matter of fact, her 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 son also got a PPP loan. He didn't have a business license until three months after he received the loan. I mean, this is crazy. It's absolutely nuts. So, so what I'm saying is, you know, yeah, there, there's, 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 I don't know the whole, the whole thing with, with the pandemic. I understand it. I want I know that they shut down businesses, but, but the thing about it is this is crazy, man. This is absolutely crazy. You know, so I just wanted to, to, to put that, you know, put that out there. If, if anybody wants to go and look, just look up PPP loans for the state of South Carolina. You can see. Uh, who all got them, and you can make a determination of who was fraudulent and who wasn't. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I want to. I want to. I want to tell you something that I'm thinking about and get your feedback. I mean, there's something I've toyed around with in my head. I've talked to Dave about it. Rev knows about this, but there's. Um, I've actually talked to some others about this. I want. I want to get some feedback from our listeners on an idea or concept that I have to see what they may think or not. Take a break. Back in a few. I want to go back to the previous segment. I don't have an announcement to make, and and I don't know that we're worthy of making some big announcement, but I have thought a lot about some of the issues Rujan brought up, some of the other circumstances we find ourselves in occasionally. And, I mean, I've said before and I'll say again, and I stick to my guns. I do 20 hours of talk radio. I'm not a journalist. I'm not an investigator. I don't have any interest in going... I'm down that road, but we do have an opportunity with the podcast to be an extension of the radio show or not. And I'm leaning toward not being an extension of the radio show and allow a medium or forum for investigative journalists who do talk in that manner or fashion about some of these issues. I'll give you an example. Um, I know for a fact that something is about to happen in our local school districts. I mean, I know that. I've been informed of it. I've heard both sides of the equation. We don't talk about it here because that's not what we do. But but I do believe that the podcast, No Stoplights, could be a medium or a conduit to better engage on those sorts of issues. The school district, you know, the, the state government, um, what, what is happening with local government. You know, th- there's just not the appetite in conservative talk radio, uh, in other words, when we go down that road, I mean, unless it's a highly, a highly controversial issue, 
it doesn't it doesn't serve us well to spend much time on those issues. But if we took the podcast and became uh, I don't know how to say this. You ready? More journalistic in nature. Would that better serve our community? I mean, I'm I'm always thinking about how do we get better? How do we how do we serve our community better? Um, I I I am I'm proud of what we've done with these 20 hours of radio. I mean, five hours on one station turned into 20 hours in three markets because of you and your recepting or receiving us as uh, as positively as you as you have. But but the podcast is something I'm still toying around with. And, and, you know, is it an extension of the radio show? Is it more Biden, Trump, Biden, Trump, Republican, Democrat, or can we use the podcast as a medium to focus on some of these local and regional and state issues in a more in-depth way, a, a little more like investigative journalism? Could I associate with a true journalist and have them on the podcast once a week to provide information to you on what they found in the deep dive or the deep dig into the school board, local government, um, economic development, whatever, whatever. I mean, you know, we're talking a lot about a lot of things here on the radio, and I'm inclined to believe that the latter is the best path forward. That could be really interesting. I, I just think we can do a better job on the podcast of having somebody in the studio talking about these issues, you know, and uh, and and what what is. I mean, I'm not fettering out corruption. I, I you know, I'm once again, I'm not a journalist. But, but could we use that forum for a journalist? We've gained an audience. I mean, you folks have been very kind to us. I mean, I look at our metrics and our numbers. We have gained an audience, and we're proud of that. Can we keep that audience in podcast format but serve in a different way? And, and I tend to, but I've talked to Dave a lot about this. Is the podcast going to be an extension of the radio show, or is the podcast going to be more central to our communities, local, regional, statewide issues, and do a much deeper dive on some of those. I'm inclined to lean with the latter, but I certainly would love to hear what you, our listeners, have to say about it. doesn't change the, the radio show. I mean, in no way, shape, or form, it changes the radio show, but the podcast would evolve into something uniquely different. Let's go to the phone. We got Jim calling from Darlington. Jim, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Ken. I, I wanted to. Well, first, I want to say I'm I'm so glad to hear Carrie Tharp and his wife are going to stay in Darlington. They are such an asset uh, to this community. Um, but I want to follow up with Rujan. Um, but first, I want to say I think you, you're you're assessing your situation correctly. Your your radio show reaches Orangeburg, Florence, and all these other communities, and you know, to focus on something that is local to one community is not in another. It's just not interesting to, to the other communities. But if you do it on your podcast, I think um, that that would serve the community uh, very well. Um, but Rujan uh, pointed out that this uh, person on our city council, um, this person's very divisive. She's very, very divisive, and she has a a facade of being a sweet grandmother, but uh, there's a lot of ugliness and ugly current under that facade. And every time I go to one of the uh, council members, her stance is us versus them. And it's not not good for our community. We've got great leadership now. We're moving in great strides in Darlington. 
and a lot of people are investing in the downtown area, and, and we're, we're doing our best. Um, but to have somebody that divisive on city council is not good for business who people might want to uh, transfer their business to our community. And I, I just, you know, she's admitted on camera that she fraudulently stole this tax dollar, these tax dollar money, and, uh, and her son too. And, you know, that, that needs to be observed and, and looked at. And from what I understand, there's some, there's some, uh, there's some movement going on that. Um, but uh, I, I think you're right about your podcast and your radio station. Thank Thanks you, Jim. Again. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. Um, and I'd love to hear what folks out there have to say. I mean, I, you know, I can do either. I, I just think providing a forum for people who are investigative journalists to, to engage our audience. Um, I mean, most of our listeners don't trust the media anyway, right? I mean, they just don't. But but if a member of the media are willing to come into the studio and reveal what they found in digging into whatever it is they're digging into, I think we can build, I mean, I think there's a bridge there that we can build to aid and assist a community understanding what its government is is doing, uh, what it's not doing, what it could do better at, what it's doing well at. Um, and it's not gotcha journalism. I'm not into that. I mean, I don't have any interest in in that. But but could we use the podcast to better inform, you know, some of these communities that we serve? Let's go to the phone, and then we'll take a break. We have Jeff calling from Florence. Jeff, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, about the PPE loans um, and the loans that were handed out by the government, um, you know, I, I, I see politicians asking for oversight on the Ukraine funding uh uh, an accounting of that. Uh, you, you. I'm sure you're aware that Steve Mnuchin and uh, the administration absolutely blocked all audits and investigations into the PPE money and the loan programs. Yeah, but both parties, but both parties were get the money out the door. Just get the money out the door. But both parties asked for accounting, and Steve Mnuchin and the Trump administration said no. And ah. so all these loans, well, you can look that up. I mean, it's um, you, all of those loans that were given out, and eventually they got, what happened to them? They got forgiven? Is that, oh, we don't want to forgive loans, do we? Well, but I think, I think, Phil, are you comparing sending money for Ukrainian? I mean, why, why not? Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, <laughs> please, I mean, so, so you're saying giving American businesses money that we shut down in the name of government edict, is the same as providing the Ukrainians a military funding by no, U.S. taxpayer dollars? No, no. But but you're making the equivalency. No. You just said we're we're opposed no, to no, the Ukrainians. I, the oversight. The I, I, oversight I, I I would be more comfortable with lax oversight over providing American businesses. Uh, I certainly accept that there was fraud, that there was abuse, there was waste. Uh, I, I certainly understand government's involved. There's going to be a lot of that, whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge. But there is no way. That I would, in the same Did Senate, you? say we need the same oversight for the PPP program as we do providing aid or assistance to Ukraine. No way I would compare that's those not, to one another. That's not the equivalent. What we're talking about is on the PPE and the Ukraine spending, I was talking about oversight of government. And that is equal. But that, that's not equal. That, that, that's, that's absolutely I mean, not equal, no, in no, my no, opinion. You, you're, ask, you're asking, you're no, asking for the same degree of oversight over the money we're sending to Ukraine to the money we paid business owners who the government forced to close their business 
as to whether they deserve that money or not. That is in no way, shape, or form the same as far as I'm concerned. Now, now once again, you've got a okay. different opinion, but but I, I just totally disagree with that. Uh, but both of them lack oversight. Can sure, we agree on I, that? I'll agree with that. No question about it. Okay, that's a, that's what I was saying about that. But I was saying the forgiveness of the PPE loans versus the forgiveness of student debt. Well, no, that's a bridge too far, right? Well, I mean, I think they're not the same. I don't think there's any comparison there. Oh, okay. Really? Uh, so so this, this city councilwoman in Darlington, supposedly, um, is why is she more... Uh, why is she more able to get forgiveness than a kid who went to college? She shouldn't get forgiveness. Oh, but she did. No. Point. She well, did. she's under investigation from what I'm understanding because she didn't have a legitimate business. The business was not legitimately impaired by some government order or edict. You're telling but me that if you're, you're saying you're, you're saying that if a business owner applied for a PPP loan, received that loan, that loan was forgiven is the same as somebody who goes to college and signs a document knowing they are to pay that money back. When the government allowed the business owner to borrow from the PPP, it was already known that if you could prove the money went to what you said, it was going to be forgiven. That was on the front end. They borrowed that money knowing there's a pretty good likelihood that loan gets forgiven because the government created these barriers to customers. You're saying that's the same as a... A college kid borrowing money, signing a contract, knowing they eventually have to pay the money back, and a PPP borrower signing a contract, knowing it's likely the money will get forgiven. Yeah, so so there's a couple things that you're saying. That, that's the only thing that matters, Jeff. No, no, you signed no, a contract no. knowing that the loan would be forgiven if you could prove you did with the money what they said you had to do with the money. There's nothing in that student loan contract that says that. Okay, listen, there was not a forgiveness path forward when it started. Sure there was. Came later. It was No, 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 no. no. It was always said if 75% of the money goes to pay labor, the loan will be forgiven. If you can document and prove that 75% of the money you borrowed went to pay labor, that money was going to be uh, forgiven. That loan was going to be forgiven. That was on the front end. So... So let's let's just clarify that that's okay to give away money like that. Government I'm not saying it's okay. It's what the government decided to do. Oh, okay. So that that was okay then to give money away. Jeff, you well, let's student go to loans, the, you, you believe as far it's as the you, student loans. The student loans, the they, majority of these student loans, you know, there was a whole class of. I'm losing you, Jeff. I'm sorry. We got to take a break. Back yeah. in just a couple of minutes. Underline brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? And once again, the old anti-American, American Marxist maniac, climate change yahoos. I think we're having an unusual summer. This is a perfectly normal summer in South Carolina. Nothing unusual. In fact, I remember in 85, 86, we went 30 consecutive days where the temperature was 100 or higher and not one drop of rain. Yeah, it's hot in South Carolina in the summer. Imagine that. I hear they're breaking records in Texas. Imagine that. It goes back to Ernie Johnson and Skip Carey on the old Braves broadcast. You ready? It was so hot, I saw a dog chasing a cat, and they were both walking. 
concerns <coughs> Williams of Orangeburg that calls in. He keeps spouting the same old, same old. I'd love to hear him on a call, like a debate, with both Rujan and Bert. There is substance to both of them. I think Williams and Jeff owe me some sort of talent agency fee. I mean, we're turning Williams and Jeff into household names, right? I mean, you think of Elvis and the Beatles and Jeff and Williams. I mean, it's kind of the uh, the, the the four horsemen. So, so I, you know, I, I really, if if I ever get an opportunity to meet Williams or Jeff, um, I have a contract in hand, and they owe me some percentage of the wealth they generated by being uh, the resident antagonist to, to to wake up Carolina and our conservative. Uh, way of thinking. I hate we have to interrupt Jeff. I mean, I really and truly, and I hate we had to get about some business here, but we've got an embedded feature of our show called the Winer Line, and we've got obligations. I would love, I want to say this, to Williams and Jeff, call at the beginning of an hour. That's our long segment. We can float that break. We can move around and adapt. When you call in the second half of the hour, we get, you ready? We get jammed up, and we have to meet these um these commitments to our sponsors, so to Jeff and Williams, I may give them a special number, you know, a bat line that they can call and and get ahead of everyone, but call in the first segment so we can float that break and make sure the nonsense you spew is heard by the masses. I heard you are talking about that people in the federal government, you know, have no incentive to come back. Uh, They've been making the money They've been out for 10 years. Well, uh, talk to my son, who's an Air Force pilot or any military. Uh, they don't make near the amount of money, but yet they have to come back and, uh, you know, make a normal living like everybody else. We've got to get rid of career politicians. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, no doubt. Well, I've always said there, there's a separation between what I'll call government workers and the men and women who serve in the armed forces. I mean, I, I would not lump those into the same category. We got to get out of here. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow. You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Line. Venus Restaurant and Catering, your go-to spot for delicious breakfast and lunch in Florence. Since 1977, we have been serving up fresh and tasty meals to our loyal customers.